I try to suppress these thoughts, but they leak out in second level through the head wound of my third death. I was imperfectly repaired. Vote, please. Yes, bit frightening, isn't it? Final votes. Four, nine. Against, 586. Sentence, George Saden will be aged five years. I have seen the future and it does not work. Zardoz! They make you old, but they don't let you die. So what's to stop you killing yourself? I do, now and again. But the eternal tabernacle simply rebuilds me. Into a world of eternal life, Zardos brought the gift of death. Fight back. Fight for death. 20th Century Fox presents a John Borman film. Zardos! It took careful breeding to produce a slave who would free his masters. Welcome to paradise. Zardos. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parent. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 50. That's right, it's a milestone 50. episode. 70 movies we saw in the 70s that may take 70 years for us to get through. Um, but uh, no, listen, we're down to the, I don't know, I'm not so good with math, but we're either down to the last 20 or 21. How does it work? How does that work? Sure. <laughs> Is this number 20 if we're counting down towards number one? So the next one will be... 20 more right once you get to 51 okay yeah 51 starts that countdown or whatever count up continues the count up anyway who cares i'm not i promised myself i wasn't going to do a long monologue about how long it's been since our last episode blah 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 blah. anyway we're making up for lost time we've got an all-star jam-packed episode uh we've got scott lucas representing uh chicago's you're not really representing Chicago Southside, are you? Really? No. 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 Uh, really representing Zion, Illinois. I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a centrist, a mediocre, <laughs> a middle brow is what I am. That's what I represent here, clearly. Although and you're from, wearing a Star Wars shirt, so I, yeah, I, I don't so know. All bets are off. Yeah. Um, and representing, I guess, Chicago suburbs. So actually, it's not really that much of a globe encompassing episode a couple of chicago boys uh jim healy with us from uh from madison madison where i've lived the longest in any single home in my whole life oh is that right <laughs> yeah 13 years wow. but yes born born in chicago raised in mostly the chicago suburbs lived in lived in chicago for 10 years and then what, out to Jersey or something like that? No, that was then Rochester. I lived in Jersey for a few years as a teenager, but uh, three years. Yeah. But that was before Rochester. Yeah. So I guess raised in the Chicago suburbs and New, and New Jersey. I think that that covers everything. Yeah. And then Scooter, Scooter McRae, the one and only. Uh, oh, God. Wait, we, we talked to Scooter. Is this is your second time on the show? Hard to believe you only had you on two times in the first 50 episodes, but glad uh, you made I'm, it back. I'm glad and honored as well, especially it seems to be the science fiction titles, which is definitely my great love of this era. Yeah, and we talked about um, 
Did did you and Mike? I can't remember. Connect over your childhood. Something. Did we tell? Did you tell a story about a state fair or carnival or something? Or am I confusing something else entirely? Did you have any connection with McPadden that you discovered on the show? I should have well, listened to that show. We, we, uh, well, we had our, we had Sudi purchase, but also yeah, there yeah. was a, I think the Middletown uh, State Fair. Perhaps that's it. Is what that's exactly what it was. Yes, yeah. you used to work there. I was security guard there, if you can believe, tiny little thing like me for I think one or two summers because it uh, was a nice paying job. I just sat at the gate, perfect job. Right, and he I think summered there sometime, or at least went there. Had relatives there. Went to that fair once or twice and. Might have bumped into you, perchance, yeah, perhaps. Who knows? Apparently, uh, according to Facebook, Paul Schrader still goes up there every now and then and uh, goes to see the races. I don't know if they're even still doing that. That was like, I think, two, a couple of years ago I saw that, and I was shocked senseless to imagine him sitting in Middletown watching stock car races. <laughs> Somebody oh, else was just talking to me about stock car races in Wisconsin and how... They they do it all the time. Go see stock car races with their father here in Wisconsin. I've never been to a car race of any kind. I don't think. Is there that? a good is, Jim? Is there a good seventies stock car movie? I know there are race car movies, but is there a good you know die hardcore stock car movie? Is that what Last American Hero is with Jeff Bridges? Is he doing stock cars in that? Junior is... Johnson. What is uh, Grandview USA? I know that's 80s, but oh, right. is that that's, stock yeah. car? Is that what they're doing in that? I we did know, a video right? once where we took footage from Grandview USA and put us in it. Oh. And I think they got the footage for real cheap. I, I remember <laughs> that was one of the movies we saw in New Jersey. And, and I, I, I thought for like a second, I was like, is that Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer in there? <laughs> From the loop or WLS or whatever, and then and then we saved for the end credits, and sure enough, it was they they did some kind of cameo in that. Right. All right. Well, I think we're done here. Uh, it's been great having you uh, all on the show. It's wonderful stock car uh, nostalgia. Anyway, we're all here to talk about. I I, I probably skipped over some important, uh, but but you know, those of you who want to hear the whole Scooter McRae story, tune into. It was um, Silent Running, right? That Silent you were, Running. Yeah. The Although... An- antithesis of uh, Zardoz. That's true. Uh, you know, uh, another pre-Star Wars science fiction film, but other than that... Well, and I guess they both... Zardoz flirts with the idea of being like an environmental issue oh, themed. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah it, it doesn't spend too much time on it, but there is a line towards the beginning about uh, protecting the planet from yeah. from the beasts, people, brutals. yeah, people yeah. basically. Yeah, it's a it's an odd it's an odd message in this strange movie. Um, I, I you know I just, I just want to mention one thing of interest when I was uh, reading the novelization at the uh, front of the book, Borman points out that uh, they shot between May and July. 1973 so we're actually recording this pretty much 50 years to the month of when they were actually shot Zardoz which is pretty great timing not well not only is that why we that's why Ben doing it. this now that's why we yeah, that's why we did it and that's why I waited six months since our last episode to do it because the time was not right until 
until right now. You are like Zardoz. Yes. You're like Arthur Frayne. Yes. yes. Not to mention Friend. Uh, on my first rewatch of the current rewatch cycle, in order to prep for this thing, I was like, yeah, why, why do they, why are there so many sound-alike things in this movie that are not, there's how, no point to it. It's not helpful. Wait, <laughs> but, how, well, how many times did they say Friend and they go, are they talking about Frayne? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. And, and that may be one of the reasons why Borman had to add that little witty prologue at the beginning which he did he said people were confused by the movie and what was going on in general and so to have i am arthur frayne and i am zardos okay got it that's the first line of the well i was i was i was gonna posit a whole theory about how i feel like that prologue must have been done after some test screenings and was waiting for scott to yell at me about that because i'm always like trying to like figure out what what they did to fix a movie that was already sure. done but then i read borman saying that that's exactly what happened yeah. i was like oh that's, good I, yeah. don't even, I don't even have to have yeah. this argument but but for the for that sort of thing isn't it extremely witty and it's really well it's i think it's really well written oh it like, is right? i love it yeah it's a beautiful it's 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 very poetic and and then ends with a with a satirical joke you know is god and yeah. show business too it, it's funny to think as well that uh he had to shoot a prologue for exorcist 2 to kind of uh, put things in the context so <laughs> right. once he once he goes near his science fiction movies which i think exorcist 2 is it's not a horror movie it's a science fiction movie but whenever he touches science fiction it seems like there has to be a prologue added because he's got so much going on that needs to be explained before the lay audience can kind of uh, get into it well, yeah. I found out he was offered Exorcist after the, the first Exorcist after Deliverance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not here to mourn the loss of a John Borman Exorcist, but it's crazy that he had the chance to tap into the zeitgeist that heavily twice in a row, and just yeah, said, "Nah, I don't see yeah, it." I think you know his re- classic response about that, which he said, that basically, I, I don't want to make a movie. It's basically a girl getting beaten up for two hours is right. uh, why yeah. I walked away from it, which is pretty much what the movie is, actually, as much as I love Exorcist. Yeah. 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 But, well, all right, let's get back to the idea of whether this prologue is witty or not. And ma- maybe it is. I guess it's it's amusing. Sure, it's charming and poetic. But I do have to say, I don't think it actually helps... No, clarify anything, and it makes. I think it makes the movie that much more confusing for on first, second, and maybe third viewings. I couldn't get past the fact that he looked like the purple pie man from the strawberry shortcake <laughs> stuff. And for a second, I thought it was David Lockery from Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos, and I had to look it up. Wow, it's nice. There's a floating head too, though. yeah it kind of ties in in that sense it's interesting when i was watching these these times it doesn't even look like it was shot by jeffrey unsworth so and i haven't been able to find any confirmation either way about it but it doesn't really quite match the uh beautiful quality of the rest of the movie the final shot to the the dissolving montage of zed and consuela was also not shot by unsworth he was uh he's already gone the uh, the original shot um that they did, they I think they had to do it twice. And they had to do it times. three times, three, three times. times, right? But they did it twice, <laughs> and it got screwed up by tech. And then by the third time, Connery was thought it was a joke that they were telling him to come back again. And he went into a rage. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'll him. strangle him. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there, there's lots of talk about how this movie, you know, they didn't have enough money to make this movie the way it should have been. And it really feels like for that prologue, they had literally run out of money. They were using like short ends or something and they just got into a black box and they said, we'll just put black all over the rest of him. And I don't, I don't know if they moved the camera around to, to yeah. make it seem like he's floating around or they did something afterwards. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's it's very cheap. It cut and it cuts off the both the headdress and his chin, right. and you know, yeah. anytime it dips below, it's it's not it's not like they perfectly green screened. It's his, not the shape elegant. Of his head. No, in any way, no, no. But I think the writing is. I really like the. I'll, I'll stand by the writing. I think it's it, it's good. And and maybe that was the point. It was just like, well, if they think I have to do something, then I'll I'll put something in here that just restates my themes again and then you know and maybe that was the maybe that was it. it was like they said oh you mean frame the guy we see later was the same guy he shot in the head who fell out the who fell out and you know maybe that's what people were confused by and so you get a you get an extra look at him at the beginning and i i can't imagine that helped anybody <laughs> right and you can all, uh, yeah. also with the dialogue you can you can feel him like well not the dialogue but the monologue you can feel him working his way towards excalibur you know he's bringing up yes. Merlin and all that kind very of stuff. Very Merlin-esque, yeah. yeah. Frayn is very much a Merlin character. Almost all of Borman's films have a Merlin-type character in there, some kind Who, of metaphysical. Who's the Merlin in Deliverance? Uh, oh, d- definitely the kid with the banjo. Are you kidding? He sets them, go- <laughs> yeah, he sets them out on their journey. That's what I was hoping you were going to say. <laughs> He's the puppet master. Yeah. <laughs> and the banjo master. Uh, yeah, so, but, uh, the other thing about Arthur Frayne is that he's got this drawn on facial hair. Um, and I don't know what that's about. Does anybody, is it, is it, is it historically significant? Is it, he has got this, they've got, they're wearing, he's wearing that headpiece that, that some of them are wearing like a, like a kerchief, like a, but it, it feels Egyptian or something to me. Yeah. As yeah. does the the weird drawn on facial hair. I mean, it's he's all about artifice, right? It's yeah, it's, theatricality. He's, he's the Wizard yeah. of Oz, and and um, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain. This is the, this is what's going on. Yeah, even the lighting at the beginning feels like it's stage light hitting him from below, like he's uh, at the edge of the stage talking to the audience. It's an interesting choice. So, is everybody here in the tank for this movie? Like, is, does nobody? Think that this is an awful movie? That'd be me. I love this film. It's, it, I can actually say it's like if I was compiling a list of top 10 science fiction movies, this, this cl- floats like a head perilously close to being in the top, t- certainly in the top 10. It, behind what? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I well, I mean, I love uh, a boy and his dog. I think is mm-hmm. great. Clockwork Orange. Uh, it's funny. All these again. All, uh, Final program is up in there as well. Um, it's funny. The other two, Clockwork Orange, Boy and His Dog. I mean, that's I guess that's top three sci-fi movies with the starring rapists. Yeah, including Zardos. Seventies <laughs> is such an incredible era for like, oh, let's make our protagonist rapists and killers, and uh, they'll either be reformed or you'll learn to come along on the journey with them because that just seems to be prone to that era. When yeah. I was watching the movie That's- again earlier today, I was towards the end of it. I was like, what are the other movies? I mean, I kept thinking of other movies. I think I think of other movies every time I see this movie, but today was the first time that I was like, you know what? This is kind of this is kind of a boy and his dog, but sort of trying to trying to obfuscate the 
the the the the the sort of just rapey um sort of you know 11 year old kid nature of the story and what's really important to the people telling the story uh sort of hiding a little bit behind these sort of philosophical musings in a way that boy and his dog doesn't bother with boy and his dog's just like we're here to see some tits and rape some women and 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 but it but it's kind of the same story right in that it's this interloper who gets pulled into this uh creepy post-apocalyptic closed society and where everyone is impotent and asked to help uh you know at some point asked to help populate the joint again right and then he transforms it through murder basically yeah so it's uh very close to this what year is a boy and his dog is that the same year? 75. Yeah. Clockwork Orange is 72. This is 70. It's 74 here in the States. It might have been 73 over in uh, Europe, but it's 74 here. And then, yeah, 75 is Boy and His Dog. I mean, I would also say that the, that the thing that holds me back, I'll just say Zardoz is a movie that I don't really think that I saw all of in the 70s. It was a movie that always seemed to be playing on TV at like 2 in the morning. Uh, uh, you know, on Channel 2, like the Late Late Movie or something, and I would catch little bits of it. But, of course, it's a movie that was just sort of in the air, like that, you know, the right. image of Connery and the name Zardoz. And I would say my favorite thing about the movie always is discovering and then forgetting and then rediscovering what the title is and what it refers to. And I sort of mm. love it every time. I'm like, oh, that's such a that's such an obvious and yet cool and funny, like, you know, what what it turns out the the title refers to always cracks me up when it when I get to ben, it. Ben, I love hearing you say that because I I, I have I have a very specific relation to that movie. And and Scott, to answer your question first, uh, I'll say I love every deeply flawed minute of it. Okay, and almost every minute is deeply flawed. But yeah, I I've seen it. I probably watch it at least every other year. I mean, I just I find myself drawn to it uh and, and much uh in the same way as logan's run but i don't have the same uh, logan's run i look at every time and go nah it's just dopey but there's something about it but there's really something about zardoz and i'll tell you how i discovered it i definitely didn't see it in the 70s but um danny perry's yep. cult movies book the first one had a list at the end of other movies we might consider for future volumes that are cult movies and 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 i saw the name and i was like oh i i need to know what that is i need to see that and i think i might have looked it up in leonard malton's guide where he wrote two lines about it which didn't really give me anything but then i think it's in cult movies too it's in he, two he, yeah he that's where it, i right. came across it yeah and he danny perry hates it he hates the film yeah. and yet when he described it his synopses are very good and then even when he talked about it, i said oh yeah i really I really need to see this film and almost haunted by the fact that maybe I saw some of this years and years ago and just don't remember. Like it was on TV when I was too young and, and something. I don't think that's the case, but I finally caught up with it. We, I think we, I think it came out on VHS in like the mid eighties and I saw, I saw a pan scan version of it. And uh, I was struck the whole time from start to finish with a feeling that everything about the movie, what it was trying to say was right. And somehow the story was always in my head, especially the aspect of the wizard of Oz that behind it all is the wizard of Oz 
And that's what inspired Arthur Frayne. And that's what, you know, inspired him to set Zed out on his journey, you know, and then of course the, the question is who's, who's controlling Frayne's strings. But um, uh, there is a very, uh, uh, almost like inborn uh feeling about this movie with me that it's that it's always there it's always been in my head right even though even though it was made five years after i was born and 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 there's and so to hear that like one of the main inspirations for borman was you know this hero's journey this kind of Jungian myth that that he believes are you know inborn in people and of course that is that's the whole thing that pushes zed along because he's got something in his head already that that lets him follow the you know the 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 trail of breadcrumbs that frayne is giving him uh and i don't know it's just it's 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 a movie it's a very indelible film for me and uh you know i watch it i know when it gets boring and i know when it gets you know completely uh, uh, obfuscating like you said and and uh but uh, but yeah yeah and just but i you know i think that the bonkers quality is one of the more watchable things but there's always if you wait at five minutes or so there's always something that's just crazy <laughs> but it's it's really apparent watching it now how you know how small his budget was and he really you know he really did feel hampered by that but he said you know he felt like he could get enough of his vision out for a million dollars um that it would be worth worthwhile doing um and he, you know the only reason he got that million was because deliverance was was so big but he and you know and then he got connery to sign yeah. on board but his second choice you mean yeah right yeah. it was first burt reynolds and then i i uh, one of the one thing i heard today is that that for a brief time after burt reynolds got sick he thought about calling lee marvin back who he had already done two movies with Oof. uh and then and then thought thought you know well connery's probably a little more beefier and mustachioed and you know the lee marvin looks good with the mustache there was another name that was thrown out oh god i i, I can't remember but it made a lot huh. of sense maybe i can find it huh. so the real question is has anyone ever tried to sync the film up with pink floyd's dark side <laughs> of the moon there's so much talk here about wizard of oz so maybe that would work here too i never even thought about it to you i try that with everything that. Oh yeah. Try it with the the finale of Friends, you know. I, I try it with. Yeah. It's incredible with a room with a view. It's yeah. just you know a couple other merchant Amazing. You got to smoke a lot of pot though for it to work. Like a lot yeah, of pot. Think, I'm gonna try to sync it up with Pink Floyd's The Wall, the movie, and see what happens. Oh, yeah. I bet that would. Yeah. Hmm. There's um. The the thing that the thing that I think holds it back for me and Scott, I'm not in the tank for this movie. I. Uh, I think it's enjoyable. I think it's a fun film to talk about. Um, as G- as Jim Healy was saying to me sometime in the last year, he's like, he's like, you know, it's more. It's what, with these seventy movies episodes, it's more fun to find movies that have that are not perfect films that are deeply f- flawed films or even semi flawed films, and that makes for more interesting conversations and a lot of times more interesting movies. But. Um, but I think that the the two the two major things that I, that are for me like hold it back from me truly saying yeah I think this is a great movie is I I do think that it's got a lack of uh, of any sort of 
sympathetic or enjoyable character or or i I just think that sean connery's character is kind of like i don't i don't give a shit about him and he's like kind of a jerk and then i think there's supposed to maybe be this thing where you're discovering that he's not who you think he is you know and that he really has this backstory and he's got all this knowledge that he's sort of been keeping from the rest of the people in the movie but i don't it just it doesn't it doesn't change anything for me. So there's that that bugs me about that. I don't like ultimately like I'm not on Sean Connery's side. I don't I'm not rooting for him. Um, and I don't know that you're supposed to be. I'm, I'm not saying that that's like that there was something that Borman's trying that he fails at. I think that that's probably what his vision is. But then the other thing is that it, for something that he keeps saying is and, and and if you think about it, like, yeah, this is supposed to be like this epic like a lord of the rings this is what he tried to you know this he's like okay if i can't shoot lord of the rings i'm going to create my i want to do my own world building but and i think he does a lot of world building but it's also crammed into which I, the running time of this movie is is two hours no, no it's an no. hour 45 one hour, hour 45. 45 right and yeah. it feels like a tight like a not, not necessarily quick because there are some boring parts but it feels like there's so much story that gets crammed into such a small amount of of time, it really does feel like this is the kind of world building and story that you'd want to like, you know, take place over several films. Um, yeah, it's like an origin story. It's like it's not a lot of there's not a lot of story, but there's a lot of details, ideas, ideas and lots of ideas and yeah. philosophies. And um, it's you know, Danny Perry complained that uh, how thinly drawn Zed is. And it's hard to watch an alien discover an alien world. I mean, we don't know anything mm. about. He's an alien to us, and then he's. Nice. I mean, eventually the structure. You know, you, we, we. It is about finding out about him and what his past is, and but it, it it comes too late for the for his. This is what Perry's saying. It comes too late for uh, how what we're supposed to feel about his reaction to everything else when he arrives in the Eternals village. I guess. Yeah. I mean, to, to, as Ben was saying, I mean, these aren't even characters. These are ciphers. This is, this is like watching someone else play a chess game, uh, right. Zardoz, and just moving the, the character pieces around. Right. And it really becomes like just nonstop sort of exposition. It's a bunch of sort of semi-formed characters telling the other characters what's been going on, what's about to happen, what the, you know, there there isn't a lot of time for actual sort of on-screen discovery other than like the crystal is telling Sean Connery everything that he needs to know and so is arthur frayne and the uh the eternals are telling sean connery stuff and sean connery is eventually telling his story it, it and and it, that even that in theory sounds i think better than how it plays like oh this is a movie about storytelling and there's a bunch of people telling these stories to each other you know but the but it all feels like a big sort of montage by the end of it you're like well i i, I feel like i've seen scenes from a movie rather than the actual movie hmm. I mean, Borman was always saying that it was, it was such a personal film for him, but like, how? I mean, <laughs> what, what, you know, what about this is like his personal issues that he would have? I mean, is this, this fear of masculinity being stamped out? I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm honestly asking. That, he, he, no, he says that on the commentary track. He says, I took some criticism at the time about masculinity winning out and in the end, and, you know, and, a, and the ultimate couple being a man and a woman. Uh, but that's what I believe, and that's what you know. That's where things sh- should go. 
Right. And for all that being said, we still have two guys kissing, two women kissing at one point, oh, yeah. and moving the teardrop across. So I, I didn't read it as being like a total critique or a masculinity wins, or at least not in that sense. Uh, that's that's interesting to hear. I mean, it feels like uh, the movie. I would say maybe it's personal for him because it's the wet dream of a twelve-year-old. Yeah, you know, in terms <laughs> of its overall zeitgeist, right? Well, yeah. and Scooter, you've read the novelization, right? Yeah. And isn't there a more, you know, like a six-page graphically described orgy scene in there where he where he impregnates oh, all yeah. the all the women and somehow he's able to you know fuck four or five women over the course of a very short amount of time and I got to say even in my best day I was reading that going like yeah go Zed <laughs> well because at because Zed at must that must be referring to the emptiness of his balls what's that but, it, <laughs> but at that point there's a lot of discussion about how time doesn't factor into this so it's they're, they're, right. they're no longer it's no longer about time will work outside of time it's something about osmosis they say like everything's going to happen yeah. through osmosis so I think he's impregnating them through osmosis and they're giving him the knowledge of humanity but yeah. does anybody does anybody have a feeling about who if any if any faction the um the eternals the renegades the brutals um who the or what the whoever, empathetics the, the, empathetics, yeah. the who or whatever fuck is the um tabernacle who are we supposed as an audience are we supposed to be ultimately on the side of any of those things or are we supposed to think they all need to come together and work together somehow it's a dystopian movie um yeah but like you're into like in logan's run you're like fuck yeah logan get out of that thing and you know save yeah, humanity or whatever but there's none of, the of that in this movie why that movie is so much more you know i guess easily watchable um it's it's um it's the it's a it's the mythic journey it's you know and i guess uh part of borman's um talents uh gifts style is that uh he's a transgressive himself as an artist at least in the 60s and 70s and i think that's what tarantino values so much about at least deliverance i know he's kind of a dissenter on some of the other films but um you know that's and that's what that's why he that's why his glory days were the 70s um you know there's there's an element of uh transgression as far as uh sex and violence goes um sometimes it's one or the other in the film sometimes it's both and then there's also a, a kind of need to shake things up narratively you know so starting with point blank you know when you have that kind of last year at marion bad editing style imposed upon this really straightforward uh Richard Stark, Donald Westlake uh, book, um, and and in Zardo's, I think it's I think it's the sex and the violence and the kind of willingness, like something like Clockwork Orange or A Boy and His Dog, to put somebody who's you know fairly repellent uh, as as the hero, as the person we're meant to follow the whole film. Right, but it also makes you think that like like maybe Borman's true sympathies were always with Burt Reynolds and deliverance, you know, hmm. and I mean, he sees himself as this, you know, masculine man. And he, and he is against the pussification of society. But, but the journey ends up, we end up following the, the one who gets transformed the most is John Voight. Right. So we, 
Right. In the end, we end up following him. But maybe maybe that's part of the shock value of the film is that we really do think going into it that Burt Reynolds is going to be the guy who leads them out of the out of the swamps and and uh, and and then at the halfway point of the film or whatever it is when he when the yeah. bone is sticking out of his leg. Yeah, I actually think that's more like uh, I, not so much uh, saying that he is the lead. I think it's the misdirection, like in Psycho, killing off. Uh, a key character early in the film, and I think crippling Reynolds in Deliverance has that effect. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it means that we're supposed to uh, identify with him as being the lead, the true lead of that movie. I don't think we are, but I think maybe Borman, that's the one that he identifies with the most. But also you can say, say that John Voight's character is on a journey towards becoming more like the Burt Reynolds character. He... Mm-hmm. It's not it's not the pussification of John Voight's character, it's the machoization. It's John Voight becomes that action right. hero you right. know, in the last act of that movie. I like I don't that. know, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie and that's probably <laughs> what make I mean, you know, there's a lot that's still like this whole psychic violence thing feels like Twitter to me and you know, <laughs> the idea of a large group of people being controlled by a fake savior is probably more resonant than ever, you know? So this movie yeah. really, it'll be interesting to see how it plays. Isn't the tabernacle the internet? Isn't that ex- just exactly what it is? It's something that has all the answers and all the information for yeah. you when you, when yeah. you ask They're little a uh, crystals in their head, so they'll connect yeah. to that. I love how also it's a time-sharing computer, so it's like, uh, is this a, <laughs> just a priority request? Can we put that in? Or, you know, this is not what I asked for. This is a you know across a single line of cars and not the history of automobiles. So there's, there's fun stuff like that. Like the, the movie does, I think, have a sense of humor, a, a, a great sense of humor that almost gets buried uh in the weirdness like there's right. some stuff that of course plays unintentionally funny but there's some stuff in it too that's really quite witty well i was going to say that it's it feels like you can find so many if you're looking for them references or influences and it's hard to tell how many of them are deliberate how many of the jokes are deliberate you know when they say when 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 somebody at some point says Zardate, is that a is that are they literally playing around with Stardate? Well, you know, this is post Star Trek. Uh, are they? Is that is that an actual sort of reference to Star Trek, or is it just a goofy coincidence? Yeah, it's a little nonsensical. It's like Zardate three twelve, and I was like, what the fuck three twelve? What days? Years? <laughs> what, what what is it even referring to? Hey, Scooter, I don't think we got to hear how you first encountered this movie and you i would say out of the four of us or maybe at least maybe it's biggest champion or maybe have the most um uh, uh skin in the uh, game skin in the game skin. thank you uh, in this movie it's foreskin i think i uh <laughs> strangely enough the uh, the first time i remember seeing this was either senior year of high school or freshman year of college going home uh to visit family and it was playing in unbelievably in prime time on channel 11 mm. uh in you know uh, for those who live in new york and remember that uh, lovely network and i believe it was it must have been an eight yeah it would have been an eight o'clock movie because then the local news would come on at 10 mm-hmm. um and so of course it was cut for tv cut to ribbons i'm sure mm. and of course not uh, letterboxed either and uh, it was a title like uh, it came on like oh this is what i've been reading about i can't believe it's how lucky i am on a friday night you know so i sat down to watch it and it was just totally 
totally gobsmacked by it, even under those conditions, not realizing just how much I was missing. In right. fact, I'd love to I'd love to see that version again, just to see how uh, completely butchered it must have been. But yeah, that, that really stayed with me. And uh, from there on in, you know, I was kind of was uh, on a mission to see it in, in an uncut form. Now, how long did that take? Oh, a long time. Uh, the, <laughs> the first time I saw it in any respectable version was when it came out on Laserdisc mm. in the 90s from Fox. And the thing that was funny is that I remember I got the Laserdisc. It's like, oh, it's Letterboxd. I'm so excited. I was going out of my mind. I put it in the player. And it wasn't fully letterboxed, so it was like one eight five ish to two somewhere in between. So it was still missing information on the sides. Right. And I, I didn't like I didn't know going in that it was missing. I was just watching it, going like, "No, nah, that composition's fucked. That can't right. be right. It's almost as bad as when it was, you know, full screen." So you know, years have gone by, and now of course we're we're spoiled. I've got my UK and my American release of Zardoz on. Uh, two different blu-rays and it's gorgeous and it's 235 and it was really worth the wait but in between i did get managed finally to see it projected in a theater more than once and uh, I, I will tell you that at one point i did drag some friends to see it and uh, I, I did get some flack uh, uh-huh. after the screening as one <laughs> might imagine but that's you know that's me i'm also the guy sitting there cheerleading exorcist 2 the heretic i think borman has got uh, a unique perspective on science fiction and I, I love these two movies very much and in fact i think they're inextricably linked i oh, feel God. like the ending of exorcist 2 actually leads right into uh the beginning of zardoz in the same way that uh, I, I call it the unofficial trilogy and then excalibur in its own way hmm. uh, with its hero ethos leads into believe it or not exorcist 2 uh, which, uh, because in many ways, Merlin is a heretic. I even think he described himself at one point as being a heretic. Yeah. So there's a lineage for me, and I think it's an unofficial trilogy of movies, the uh, Borman movies that I love, that are connected uh, only in my own mind, apparently. But you just whatever. blew my mind. <laughs> ben, we're not I'm doing glad. heretic. We're not doing Exorcist Two next, are we? Uh, not next. We'll we'll, we'll okay. space it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You actually want to maintain viewership here, listenership. I think going next with that would kill it. So it's Excalibur first, Exorcist mm-hmm. two second, and then this third. Yeah. Okay, I got my work cut out for me. <laughs> Does um, what do you, you connect. what does everybody think about John Borman's career and what this movie did to it? Like I coming into starting to think about this in in, in a real way this week, I. My my first thought was like you know he had the world was his oyster after right. Deliverance, and there's been plenty of directors who get that chance to do whatever they want after a huge hit and then do something that they call their personal film, you know and and some directors and, you know and 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 more oftentimes than not it's like ooh what the fuck was that you know everyone's like what did you just do, and some directors get to move past it and some directors seem like they never do. And in my mind, I feel like Borman is one of those guys. Like, he never, I don't think he ever got his career back on track. I don't really know that he ever got to make movies, the movies that he could have or should have been making uh, once, once, once he went down this path. But um, do you guys disagree with that? Do you feel like oh, sure. post, post uh, Zardoz, Borman is still 
Borman and Borman happily doing what he wants to do and 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 feeling like he's he's on he's on his own path. I think the only the only movie that came as as an assignment for him after Zardoz is Exorcist Two: The Heretic. I think almost everything, and you know, and there's uh, uh, you, I can't think of two more personal films for him than uh, Excalibur and Hope and Glory. Yeah, yeah. now that's personal. Uh, yeah Absolutely. and and yeah. his last his last <laughs> film his last film which just came out 10 years ago is a is a sequel to Hope and Glory which is about his his army years. So, you know, he made very very personal films, the things he wanted to discuss to you know, to varying degrees of of uh I think artistic success and to almost no degree of box office success. I think right. Excalibur in the end was, you know, qualified as like a sleeper hit. Yeah. Excalibur but, did really well. Yeah, but uh, other than that, he never really had a, you know, uh, Hope and Glory got a bunch of Oscar nominations, but was not, not any kind of box office smash. Um, so is but, Ben right? I mean, well, in terms of in terms of capitalism, like in yeah. terms of box office. I mean, is that what uh, you're talking about, Ben? I mean, I, I I'm I'm asking a pretty broad question that could have different kinds of answers. I mean, I guess I guess one of the one of the questions in my head, and it's a kind of an obnoxious, un, unknowable question, I think, at this point. I mean, after the success of Deliverance, if you'd asked John Borman to imagine his next twenty, thirty years in the business, would he have described anything like what his next twenty or thirty years in the business turned out to be? I don't know. I think he was probably realistic about what the business was. The you know, if you think about it. He knew what kind of potential movie director jail he was in after Zardoz. And he he made Exorcist 2 because it, it came his way. And I think he knew he had to do it. But then at the same time, he went and made this completely wild, completely personal movie uh, that's very much about things he's interested in and that you know its biggest flaw is anytime it calls back to the exorcist you know right so he was going to yeah. he was going to really scare away people uh who were who were coming expecting to see you know something like to what uh, omen 2 is to the omen you know right. it's not a it is not a cookie cutter film at all it's a distinctly mm. the work of a completely different Oh, uh, movie artist. I'd even well, go so far to say it's an ex, it's uh, Evil Dead two to to Evil Dead in that it totally switches genres. Like, like yeah. and it's like Exorcist two isn't a horror film at all to me. It's a science fiction movie right. with some horror trappings in it, but it's a science fiction film straight through. Uh, and so that that's why the Evil Dead thing comes into my mind. And there's all kinds of you're right. There's all kinds of devices in the movie and and conceits. It's it's definitely. I mean. He's. I think he's the most metaphysical of contemporary filmmakers, and it's uh, Exorcist Two is just loaded with metaphysical conceits. So is Zardoz, but you know. it's like Borman's but career is almost. I think it, Borman, it, uh, Paul Verhoeven after Showgirls, I think is is somebody that you could compare it to. Like you know, hmm. Verhoeven never quite got back into the lane of like the Hollywood big director and he went back and fucked off back to you know 
and made Hollywood. great movies. You know, yeah. you know, there's Black Book, oh, and oh, yeah. you, you know, and he was like, I don't need Hollywood anymore. And right. I think that's kind of what happened to Borman. He was like, I, this isn't worth it. This the grind well, and the physical toll, or I the mean, psychic his, toll. His last studio film is the mid '90s, and he's you know, uh, the biggest gap I think is between. Exorcist 2 and Excalibur. I think that's close to four years in terms of releases. But he's after that. Uh, well, and then I guess there's four years between Excalibur and Emerald Forest. But after that, he's oh, pretty right. he's pretty good for a movie like every other year or every three years. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, if you think about most auteurs, certainly today, that's kind of what you get to every two or three years. That's, you know, Wes Anderson every two or three years and PTA. Right, but he wasn't trying to make those big cultural No, I don't think he I don't think he ever had a chance to do that right. again. That's that's true. Uh Emerald Forest has a pretty good sized budget. Excalibur he did uh, on a on a much smaller budget than I think he would have wanted, but that's all one part of that film's I think's great strengths is how it uh telescopes all of the all of the Arthurian myth from, you know, Uther all the way to the Holy Grail and yeah. Arthur's death, and, you know, in this incredible, like, what is it, two and a half hours, two hours, 20 minutes, something yeah, like it's that? it's 220, I think. It's, not even it's really yeah. just a, a feat of, of editing and storytelling. Um, and then Emerald Forrest had a decent, he, and he got really lucky with Hope and Glory because his pal David Putnam was running the studio and, and got any, and he was able to do that film, and and that's you know that's one of the best World War II movies, certainly one of the best films about England during the war, and uh, and then he did after that there was that that Disney film, that Touchstone film, which I forget the name of it, was Dabney Coleman's in it, and it's it's really an odd comedy. Crispin Glover, Uma Thurman, I think was it Where the Heart Is or. Wow, home is where the heart is, or something like that. No, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and then yes, that is what it's called. I think where the heart is. I think home might be in. Maybe it's just where the heart is, but it's about yeah. it's about a home. It's about a building. About a, yeah, it's a. I saw it once. It's uh, very odd. I think pretty sure Dave Kerr gave it four, three and a half or four stars in the Chicago Tribune. And oh, Dave Kerr. He well, he's a big Borman guy. Yeah. Um. And then, uh, and then there's Beyond Rangoon with Patricia Arquette. Which oh, that's is really, right. Really a gorgeous movie, but kind of left me cold. It's story wise, and and then there's uh, and then he did The General, which right. is, I think his his uh, uh, I don't know. It's his it's his it's his first real Irish movie i guess even though zardoz was all filmed there and much of excalibur was and it's a you know it's a contemporary irish story and he did a couple of those i i don't you know and then there's the last 10 15 years of his career and then is it for queen and country or for king and country the last one the the hope and glory sequel um no i don't know but it's it's good it's worth seeing and i've I've seen them all i've he did one with juliet binoche and Samuel L. Jackson, and then he did one that nobody saw, which was another Brendan Gleeson movie set in modern day Dublin. That was about the economic crisis going on in Ireland. And, oh, uh, that screams uh, commercial. Ba- barely, I mean, really. <laughs> I, I was able to. I I don't know it. It got released all, at all. I was able to show it 
uh, at George Eastman House when I was working there in Rochester. But uh, yeah, I saw I it. Have, I haven't seen it since. I didn't see it there when you showed it, but I, I did see it. You did? I wasn't in the audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it got some kind of release. I mean, if it's not on home video, then somewhere theatrically. So what do we think about uh, what this movie would have been? How how different would it have been? Would it have been that different with Burt Reynolds? Maybe maybe the humor would have been a little more. I mean, Sean Connery's obviously capable of being witty and he's intelligent. But maybe it would have been a little a little more satirical with Burt Reynolds. Same facial hair. Would facial people hair, mustache? Same facial hair, but would people have had, I mean, because that's all people talk about is Connery in a red diaper. Would people have had that much of a problem with Burt Reynolds in a red diaper? The physique's not that much yeah. different. Yeah, no. That's a good question. I think the, you're right. The amount of chest, chest and back hair, I think, is pretty consistent. Yeah. <laughs> diaper expectations would have been slightly dialed down, I agree, with uh, Burt Reynolds. Well, and that, you know. It's a loincloth. Come on. Well, we end up talking about wigs and toupees a lot on this show um, by my own obsession. But that's not a bad wig that Sean Connery's got in this movie. That's a wig? I thought he was going for real. I think he lost his hair by then because he's wearing wearing a wig throughout most of the James Bond movies. Yeah. 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 Ben has ruined uh, Jimmy Stewart for me. John Wayne, he's ruined everybody for me. You haven't ruined William Shatner yet, have you? No, but I mean, what? Ja- William Shatner wore a wig. <laughs> <laughs> but Jimmy Stewart's toupees are fantastic. I mean, his hair is great in those movies. And, and, and Scott, you and I mostly love just the back of Jimmy Stewart's head. Neck. And he's hair got a great neck. He's got, he's got a great, great neck. Back of the and, neck. And that's yeah. his real hair. That's back organic. There. Yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> organic. Um, but, but but your Lee Marvin thing blew my mind because that's a much different what? movie. Yeah, although <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna uh, need a minute. Lee Marvin, uh, uh, there's a couple of westerns where he's got the the gray mustache, you know. Oh, so I can see. I, I'm I'm one. Yeah, paint your wagoners a couple of. I wonder if 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 Borman would have. You know, maybe that was maybe that was a sticking point. He didn't want to grow a mustache for this. Well, one. but also it's I I don't know about Lee Marvin at that time being able to wear the diaper and. Nothing else. <laughs> also, probably about yeah. ten years older too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I was in the Pacific. You know yeah. the the other thing that that kept occurring to me watching this movie a couple times this week is how how adjacent it is to seventies porn movies, and I don't think it's that much of a stretch to imagine this movie as sort of a Henry Paris esque. Uh, you know, full-on porn movie. I mean, it basically is. Has I mean, how how different is it really than Flesh Gordon? Uh, yeah. You know, and if you yeah. and if you build up, if you if you do the orgy scene that's in the novelization, and you sort of just right. play out some of that other stuff. I mean, it's it's basically what what the porn industry was trying to do in the seventies, right? Scooter, you 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 know about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I could see this as being like Zardong. <laughs> <laughs> story of a stone cock going through the air and raping and pillaging and you know yeah i th- i think that maybe that even though again this is a 14 year old sci-fi fantasy thing yeah. i think if maybe or 12 year old if he had maybe gone for 18 
if you'd done the eight instead of a 12 year old just got i think it would have definitely had some some serious hairy labia stuff going on in there because it hard oz oh oh, i like that too yeah hard oz (laughs) yeah the penis is good that'll that'll be the thing the gun it's okay but the penis (laughs) now that's that's something borman talks a lot about um Jeffrey Unsworth's cinematography and what what he was doing that was so revolutionary. I don't quite get it. Uh, uh, one aspect of it, apparently he shot with a lot of filters and yeah. uh, color, shooting color with a lot of filters and smoke machines diffused things to the point where these pastels of, on the Eternals costumes really popped and the greens of the, of the bread and, you know, really brought it out and nobody had tried doing that before they were always shooting color the way they would shoot black and white which is you know he, he, using so the he, spectrum of the colors to, to one, to one other thing he light. mentioned and it, it took some some parsing i was trying to figure out what he meant because i remember specifically on the commentary what you're talking about but i think he was also saying or trying to say that he also shot with the f-stop wide open so if that's the case, that meant that he would uh, be using a lot of neutral density filters for the outdoor stuff. So on top of the diffusion, they'd be piling because you know, you it's so hard to open the f-stop all the way when you're outdoors um, when, in broad daylight. So on top of the diffusion, there would be neutral density and whatever else was going in front. Neutral density tends to flatten things out a little bit. Uh, yeah. And I think that's probably what helps with the uh, pastels having that kind of smoke or uh, uh, smoky quality, right? Yeah, I guess he used fog machines and smoke machines a lot too, and that yeah. that kind of that adds a little bit of the the porn feeling to it, I guess too. Just that kind of. <laughs> oh yeah. But but uh, now that you mention it, I was just thinking about how that really that technique he must have been using on Superman too, because the yeah. the Krypton scenes and the Fortress of Solitude scenes have the exact same quality. To the color yeah, and the, absolutely that kind of glow which, uh, yeah. which I, I love <clears throat> what do you what do you guys know about this rumor that stanley kubrick was a technical advisor on this film they were they were friends i know i know borman and kubrick were good friends um i'm i don't think he was a technical advisor. he might have looked at a cut of it and suggested something at some point but um, make it more confusing That's, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> borman you know i i don't i you know i there's there's a there's a handful of films. I know uh, the other big 1974 sci-fi movie that Kubrick was a huge fan of is uh, Mike Hodges' The Terminal Man, based on the oh, yeah. Michael Crichton novel with George Siegel. And uh, I think he, he he was always a big supporter of that. And I think in one of the movies, maybe it's Eyes Wide Shut, or there's somebody's watching The Terminal Man on huh. TV. But um, oh, wow. but but I know you know Borm you know Borman did the same thing as. It was Kubrick. After a few years in Hollywood, he just went to Europe, and in Borman's case, it was Ireland, and just you know raised his family there, lived there, tried to make as many of his movies there as possible, did all his post production there, so he could be far away from the you know hands of the studios, and um, and so you know they were he was he was very influential on him in that way too, but I don't you know I I can't I. You know, maybe he maybe he read the script and offered him some tips or something like that. But you know, Borman had these. We I think Ben, were we talking about this about Bill Stair and uh, Raspo Pallenberg? Oh, yeah. He had these like buddies 
that, you know, he just met, you know, in his regular life, like Bill Stair was a guy who I think his kids went to the same daycare center in London while he was making um, his first film, having a wild weekend with the Dave Clark five and uh, Stair, you know, he just met Stair, got along with him and he invited him to Hollywood with him to be the color consultant on point blank. And then he was always bouncing ideas off of him. I don't know what his career was. I mean, when you hear Borman talk about it, he just says he was a wonderful guy, and you know, he's and, a but he he eventually on the, yeah. he's co writer on the novelization of Zardoz oh, with so uh, he, Borman. Maybe it's a did. novel by John Borman with Bill Stair on the cover. I bet Stair did the actual writing because <laughs> that was apparently that was going on during the editing of the process. And when I mean actual writing, I mean the typing and the right. You know, they're probably, you know, dictating it to him. But um how many pages is yeah. that? Is that scooter? It's really short. It's 127 pages. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab it tomorrow, Ben, and I'll I'll bring it over to you. And uh, I will tell you it's basically just the screenplay. I don't think there's more than five lines of additional dialogue. Um, and with the exception of some more graphic uh, descriptions uh, during a couple of sex scenes, it's it's pretty much like reading the outline for the movie. It's well written. It's fine. It's fun, but don't expect any revelations. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, do we all agree that the opening of this movie is the the best part? I mean, th- that head and that that opening credit, a film by John Borman, set in the year twenty two ninety three. I've never seen a credit like that before. It's kind of great. Well, and then the uh, the 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 typography of Zardoz itself. I mean, what an amazing heavy metal um thing <laughs> speaking speaking of which uh the original co-host of this here podcast mike mcpadden uh wrote this uh uh heavy metal movies book which of course zardoz is is featured in mm-hmm. um i think it's probably only appropriate that i read this which is a pretty funny uh, description of Zardoz, and we'll actually take the place of we we normally do like a scene by scene thing, which I have written down, but I feel like we've been talking forever, and we don't we don't need to go to this movie scene by scene, do we? And Scooter, unless you want to, uh, we could touch I, on. Some you could stuff, read the book. Uh, Scooter, I'm, gonna just start, <laughs> I'm gonna start reading aloud here. Yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. Here's Mike McPadden on Zardoz. Beyond 1984, beyond 2001, beyond love, beyond death, the ad campaign for writer-director John Borman, John Borman's limitlessly ambitious sci-fi opus Zardoz made that promise, and the movie absolutely delivers those cosmic goods. In the year 2293, a gigantic flying stone head resembling a ferocious Greek theater mask floats down from the sky to a green countryside where horseback riders in red bandoliers drop to their knees in worship. I am Zardoz, the head booms across the landscape. The gun is good. The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men, as once it was. But the gun shoots death and purifies the earth of the filth of brutals. Go forth and kill. Then this magnificent tiki stonehenge on steroids in space Zardoz head spits forth an immense bounty of rifles and ammunition which the revelers scramble to collect while ecstatically praising Zardoz. At this moment, nobody would fault anyone else for thinking Zardoz may well be the greatest film ever made. 
You may even continue to believe that as Zed, Sean Connery, awakes from a pile of grain inside the airborne head's mouth, encounters a clownish pilot of some sort, and shoots him. Zed lands inside the Vortex, a highly early 70s notion of a commune, where the uniformly youthful, groovily beautiful, pastel-robed inhabitants look like the audience from the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus and actually act more stoned. Freckly scientist May intends to study Zed, while hot-headed Consuela insists they kill it. Some jerk named Friend uses Zed for slave labor. Everybody wants to know what happened to Arthur Frayne, which is the name of the man Zed shot. A lot of what can only be called hooey ensues. A lot. (laughs) The comely flower people of the Vortex are immortals. Zed, it turns out, is a mutant Superman bred and led by Arthur Frayne to bring about the gift of death. This revelation comes amidst ceaseless psychedelic visuals that start out breathtaking and quickly become numbing. Frayne also tips off the origin of the name Zardoz, blowing Zed's mind with a library copy of The Wizard of Oz. The final gory showdown between the Brutals, the killers Zed left behind, and the death-famished Immortals, imagine the climax of 1970's Gimme Shelter expanded heavily, does not satisfy. Like all that has preceded it, the scene drags on nonsensically and for too long. A coda in which we watch an allegorical time-lapse progression of Zed's and Consuela's reinvention as a new Adam and Eve, respectively, actually manages to be charming and goes by quickly. Despite the demerits, this is Zardoz, a grand example of Hollywood at its most daring and most intelligent. When a director like Borman could be rewarded for box office success, the 1972 blockbuster Deliverance, with carte blanche to chase after the sweeping ideals, lofty artistry, and idea-seeking audiences of Stanley Cooper. Zardoz shows us marvels, and at no point is it ever less than commendable. Plus, topless hippie chicks are all over the place. Ah... There you go. Important to mention that. Agreed. That's great. And fairly accurate. <laughs> I say that even <laughs> as someone who loves the movie. You've, you've reminded me there with, uh, uh, with uh, I don't know why it keeps popping out of my head, but I feel like um, people always make uh, fun of uh, the, the genius of Starship Troopers having Casper uh, Von Dean playing a guy named Johnny Rico. But I think uh, John Borman <laughs> was there first by having Charlotte Rampling playing a woman named Consuela. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is an amazing name for that character. It I mean, sure is. the line, the gun is good, the penis is evil. I mean, it must have elicited quite a few giggles from the audience. Probably still does. I mean, it's hard for a movie to bounce back from a line like that. Or get any better. Well, <laughs> right. the, that, that, comes back, that comes back to the question is uh, how much of the humor is intentional. And, you know, I, I, think, I think it's meant to be very consistently satirical and and get laughs um, i think to, to your point and i think this is a, a big issue and a big problem with a lot of science fiction movies is that um, sometimes they gain gravitas as years go by because i remember growing up and uh, soylent green suddenly seems so much more so much more right mm-hmm. as, as we've gotten to this point in time whereas when i was a kid it was like oh it's a piece of junk yeah the ending it's one of the greens made out of people but the things that are in it uh, in terms of the the apartment living the pollution mm-hmm. um all that stuff was like yeah, yeah whatever get get to the ending get to the ending but now 
all of that stuff uh, is just incredible. The the scene of uh, the, the two of them having dinner with the ugliest piece of steak in the history of cinema. It's nauseating to look at. And they're like, that's delicious. I haven't had anything like this in years. You know, you look at that, but I think that with all really good and interesting science fiction movies, and some of my favorites take that risk of... like you don't get that anymore in science fiction movies because science fiction now is just mostly just you know chase movies and outer space nonsense. But if you're actually going to take a look at um, adventure movies dressed up in space clothes, as yeah. Borman called it, yeah. Oh, is that, is that what he called? It's, it's yeah. a, he's, he's he's totally right. But the idea of uh, you know most of these movies, the, the good ones from the seventies, are basically they're all sociology. They're not uh, trying to predict. The nineteen fifties is all about let's get spaceships out there. We're going to predict this. We're going to predict that technology. Whereas I think the seventies, the most interesting stuff is about predicting what humans are going to be like in the future, and uh, which is why the era is still so appealing to me. Right, or it's saying like not what's going to happen, but what's already happening. You know, like right. I think is, most exactly. great science fiction does that. Yeah, totally. But when you do that, you take these risks of how things are going to look ridiculous or sound ridiculous. So some of my favorite science fiction movies are, in some ways, maybe some of the most laughable ones. You know, like like this one. I I mean, I totally get it. I don't begrudge anyone who thinks this thing's a hoot or it's stupid or, or this or that. I love it, and I totally understand because I know. I, even though I love it, I sit there sometimes. I'm going, yeah, you know, that's that's actually pretty fucking funny. So uh, you, one has to have a sense of humor about one's own loves, even when, uh, especially when it comes to a movie like this. Because sometimes I'll sit there and go like, wow, you know what? I'm going to make a drinking game out of uh, every time someone says the word penetration while watching <laughs> Zardoz. Because you'll get pretty uh, toasted yeah. pretty quick doing that. Yeah. So what is what is born? What do you think? If you, I mean, th- there are, as we've, I think, all said, there's a lot of ideas being thrown at the wall in this movie. But what do you think is is Borman's central conceit? The idea of immortality being a danger, uh, as something that 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 ruins the human experience, and is is that? I mean, if you're if you if you're trying to glean the overriding message that this movie is trying and and it's hard i think because there's so many there's there's all those different factions there's so many so many things that are that are being presented in a in rapid succession and being said rather than shown um it can be tricky to figure out as i keep saying where our sympathies are supposed to lie um but also, what is it? What is the what is what is what is Borman's main main? Does he have a main point? I think you're on to it with the with the uh, death is preferable to immortality. Or it's it's one of the things that makes us human, and and when we're immortal, we're not human anymore. Um, and the things that kind of add up to the Eternals becoming something less than or more than human and i guess they would call themselves more than human uh is their reliance on technology now they don't have machines they don't work with machines uh you know they bake the bread and they you know have this commune living but everybody's dependent on the tabernacle which uh, you know i don't know if you guys think the same thing i do but that isn't that 
isn't that how the supercomputer isn't that hmm. the internet um sure yeah the thing that has all the answers and then you know the 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 idea that really inspired him is the old rich getting richer and poor getting poorer and uh, you know one, one of the things that makes this movie so much watchable every every couple of years is there's some idea that reveals itself more to you or pushes itself more to the forefront. But I mean, if there's anything more relevant now than you know, the, 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 the human race growing and dividing itself into a mass of, uh, uh, troglodytes ruled by, you know, an mm. elite wealthy, all powerful few. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, the, you're, you're right though. It's a stew. So you can choose. Uh, you're watching this time and it's like, you know, but it's about religion or this time it's about class structure and economics uh, or uh, this time it's going to be about, you know, uh, uh, masculine versus feminine. So that I mean, because all of that stuff is in there in this this rich broth. So, uh, you know, yet what you choose to focus on is, I think, part of what makes the film so revisitable. Yeah. If there is such a word. Yeah. Rewatch no, it. and you. And you're right, because I think if there's a second main thrust in this movie, it is that sort of class war, like the have and have nots. And that is something that we see so often in science fiction and in horror movies and every, you know, I, I, I started thinking about that and I was like, I started thinking about movies and, and movie series and like, I couldn't figure out one that doesn't have that as a trope. I was thinking about Romero's Land of the Dead and how that's all about, like the people who get to live in that apartment complex and then everyone else is sort of stuck outside with the zombies and um, that stupid Neil Blomkamp movie, Elysium, where all the elites live up in <laughs> Uh, some little star planet, and uh, Matt Damon's got to rescue us from our future or something. And and Snowpiercer too, right? Where right. The elites yeah. live at the front of the train, and where they sleep, I don't know. They, we go through all the train cars, and we never see the bunks for the elites. You know, we know where the where the hoi polloi sleeps because we see they're you know they're stacked on top of each other. But I don't know. Right. And I think again, like if I if I have to say like what I think makes this movie um, strange and in some ways like feel rushed, it's that there's so much stuff. It feels like there's two or three or four movies worth of themes and uh, potential plot lines that all get sort of like streamlined and shoved into this thing together. You know, we don't get to spend enough time with the renegades or the uh eternals or what, what were the other one the, the, the did the you say the, the apathetics the, the apathetics yeah the apathetics yeah love the apathetics the, the vortex looks like one of the vacation worlds in westworld mm-hmm. so like yeah, when the it, evil world maybe yeah something like that so like when everyone gets killed at the end i was like oh I, i've seen this part before <laughs> Ooh, wow yul brenner would have been good in this yeah too, yeah totally <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, a diaper. and it also it. <laughs> it also becomes the lady from Shanghai, the whole Hall of Mirrors thing and Right. Uh, oh yeah. Um yeah. You know, and there's a there's the speaking of Romero, there you know, when the when the renegades decide they're going to kill Zed early on when he first visits them, that's they're very much in kind of Romero zombie mode. Um, that 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 sequence suddenly becomes very handheld, and there's a lot of like really 
frames filled with these crazed older people trying to <laughs> kick uh, yeah. Zed to death. Um, ben Wheatley on the Arrow British Blu-ray has a little 15-minute talk about Zardos, which is one of his favorites. And he talks about how the, the final massacre at the end where the brutals come in and start wiping out the Eternals is very much shot like a Romero zombie movie. Mm, huh. Very matter-of-fact in, in that way. Yeah, and there's and there's a lot of a lot of jokes there too. It's just that that's uh, you know obviously meant to kind of be satirical too. There's you know doesn't doesn't friend and frame they say something like they have a punchline after they get shot or something. It's like uh, it's all very a joke. cartoonish. Shit, he actually says yeah. he actually says shit. It was all a joke. Shit, it was all a joke. <laughs> it was all a joke. Well, he, it was yeah. this, when Connery's hand comes out of the grain with the with the the gun. Oh. Is that a, like a jokey reference to the Deliverance poster? Well, it's Deliverance, and it's also Excalibur. Excalibur, it's, right? Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He okay. sees it's it's very. Much, I think he said there's even an image in Leo the Last and hmm. a Point Blank too. So even person. on the, on Deliverance, on the poster for Deliverance, he's thinking Excalibur. Yeah, well, it's a, the image is in the movie, yeah, right? It's, yeah. the, it's the last thing we see in Deliverance, right? Is it? I yeah. thought it just goes over the water and then it never happens. We just think it's going to happen because of no, the No, you poster. definitely see it at least once because then because John Voight wakes up from the dream. Oh, it's in the dream. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, okay. and then at the end, oh, when we cut right. back. I had the same we, thing. You, yeah, I remember the ending more. With do this, do we not see it? Water. Yeah, it's just the water, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, it's, of course, I, I then, the then happens in Friday the 13th, right? They steal that. Totally stole it. What from didn't they stole it from Carrie? Well, yeah. that's what I was going to ask. Which came first, Deliverance or Carrie? Deliverance, Deliverance comes and then Carrie. And it never occurred to me that Friday the Thirteenth was stealing from Deliverance. It's all coming together, man. I've got a huge watch list ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> I love after the gun is good. The, the, the uh, what is it? The gun is good. The penis is evil. The uh, penis shoots seed. And I love the fact that Sean Connery is buried under a mound of seed when he yeah. comes up with the gun in that moment. <laughs> Some some other commentator pointed out, which I thought was really funny, uh, is that uh, uh, Sean Connery trying to get away from James Bond, trying to away from that image. The introductory the introductory shot of him in this movie is him turning around, looking right into the camera and firing his gun right into the lens, which is basically the opening of all his James Bond. Films. Oh, that's so, a great uh, that's a great point. Who did you just make that, or you said somebody else? I did not. I believe oh. that was Jeff Bond who made that observation. Oh, Jeff on Bond. An alternative uh, audio commentary track for. Uh, for Zardoz and I remember thinking oh that that's really great yeah. great observation it's great I mean his performance is pretty brave I mean people talk about the bravery of actresses in David Lynch or Lars von Trier movies but Bjork and Dancer in the Darks she's got nothing on John Borman's mistreatment of Sean Connery in this movie like just he's just like fuck you man you're gonna have to do this Oh, he puts him in a puts wedding in a, dress. In a wedding dress. <laughs> but like, keep you think you're Sean a man? Connery was staying. Sean Connery was staying at John John Borman's place while they were shooting, so they were definitely getting along. Right. Yeah. They, no, they're very, and they stayed good friends. Apparently. What is the internal logic or explanation for the wedding dress? I I never understand. They're just they're trying to disguise him and get him to 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 friend, but and that but that's the only thing they can think of that would. Well, where the fuck do they get that anyway? Right. Like, kind of wedding just <laughs> around. These, these people don't have sex. There's no marriage. Where, where the hell was that? 
thing coming from in the book it's like one line it's very funny it's going through that oh and uh, they, they they brought him through in a wedding dress to friend it, it's like they don't even i just love they didn't even dwell on you didn't even need to write that in the book what you you want to stay close so close to the movie you threw it in and it made less sense in the book than it did in the movie right. yeah but it's a good question What other movies does this movie remind you guys of while you're watching it? I was thinking of Barbarella at points yep. today. Um, I was thinking of The Prisoner. It seems like there's a lot of The Prisoner huh. series in this. All with those stuff, plastic yeah. bubbles and just all yeah. the, the way that they all speak, the way that they're all sort of like... You know, it feels like it's Sean Connery's character has wandered onto the set of The Prisoner at points, the way that they're all sort of lecturing him at all times and, like, giving him instructions or trying to explain stuff to him uh, in those very British tones. That's one thing about Burt Reynolds in this movie that would have made it very different in that he would have, you know, brought the American perspective uh, that character, you know, that character would have been even more of a stranger in a strange land. Um, and, and it would have been hard to sort of, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have if we were used to the Burt Reynolds version, but thinking of what we know of this movie, it's, it's hard to imagine that character as an American. Yeah. I think uh, you'd have sort of a pre-baked in uh, conception of what Reynolds should be doing. You couldn't imagine him being so docile uh, for so long in there. You'd be kind of waiting for the moment. Well, he's there. He's going to. When he's going to come back, he's going to. He's going to find an arrow. He's going to find a shotgun. He's going to come in and fuck this shit up at some point. Right. So uh, the expectation, I think. I mean, I, I love Connery in this, so I don't miss seeing Burt Reynolds in it. But I do think it would have been an interesting casting choice. But it would have definitely changed the overall tone. I think in terms of expectations. Yeah. It also, you know, it would have, it would have added this whole element of the sort of, you know, the ugly American, the Americans who, I mean, it, w- it w- probably would have felt more resonant now that, you know, that the, that the brutals, that the, car- the guys who are gun crazy, who walk around doing nothing but shooting everyone randomly, they shoot first and ask questions never and walk around in these skimpy, you know, uh, bathing suits like that. Yeah. Like to have an American be representing that 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 group of people makes a lot of sense now, and it yeah. would have been more personal to Borman too, because I think he definitely has a kind of, you know, uh, he's you know he's an expatriate. He lives in Ireland. He's an Englishman who lives in Ireland, and um, he you know has a very kind of uh, a scant view of of the, of the British system and the school system and the social system. Um, and I think he probably would have liked to have seen what another, um, what a, uh, you know, what an American would have done to kind of shake those things up. And, it may, and maybe he felt the same way about Connery, that him being so kind of uh, always, uh, no matter what role he was playing, defiantly Scottish. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, that, and that says a lot, you know, against a bunch of kind of patrician uh you know uptight british people like the most of the functioning eternals are i have a feeling that the first thing borman saw when he saw connery was dollar signs like oh shit yeah we'll have james bond and it's gonna it's gonna help us make money so uh he's he's, he's smart that way and he could get but him I for two hundred thousand dollars two hundred thousand yeah, yeah. Okay. as opposed to the five million he's being offered to be in live and let die that that to me 
is the most mind-blowing part about yeah. Connery being in this. Taking that pay cut was a, it's a pretty bold move, to and, you to know, say the least. Driving himself, like like you said, having to stay at Borman's. Like he, right, yeah. he was like part of the team here. He really, there was no bullshit with him. You know, having uh, also thinking about Reynolds, one thing that might have also happened too is we might have gotten into a more uh, Vietnam era subtext if we had an American in the lead. Uh, I feel like this could borderline be like, you know, 70, you know, against 73, going 74. So it's a few years after. But I feel like it avoids that by not having any Americans in it. But I think if you had one in, it might actually have started to uh, add in yet one more subtext into the stew right like well like it post-war yeah 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 post-war malaise it's also that rare dystopian movie that isn't taking place in an overcrowded urban environment it's almost i mean i guess in the storyline of the movie it's been centuries or, or whatever however long it's been and so you know, most of the population has died off or been cleared out and we're in this countryside, but we never see any of that. We don't even, we don't even really hear that that's the history, that, you know, that there was some soiling green type of environment that then led to, right, right what is this, what is, what is the story that the uh, Eternals tell? Because eventually towards the end, they tell Connery more of how they came to be Hook up, hooked up with the with the tabernacle. There's that one old guy who's like the the mastermind who's in bed who eventually dies. Uh, but what do they? What do they? What is the story they tell about how they got to where they are? It's not much, right? No, I mean they basically just say they created the tabernacle. They had the best and the brightest kind of locked into a space, being taken care of, and then the outside world was just decaying around them which you know is, is the whole class system thing again they've got that stuff of them uh, uh the the eternals walking around like the end of fahrenheit 451 reading their books and talking to each other and through the uh transparent force field you, they've got the kids out there pushing up against who are starving and dying out in the right the mud fields so it was just uh, that kind of natural progression. It's interesting because they don't say anything like a war happened. I don't remember uh, being very specific. It was just natural decay. Right. Because the other movie that kept running in my head watching it this week is Beneath the Planet of the Apes. There's all that where the land meets the sea stuff. And we're, you're seeing these things play out. And the, these people are like primitives in loincloths. And it's much more of that planet of the apes world and then there's all that psychic violence that's happening which again is very much the beneath the planet of the apes um uh people so there's 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 that 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 resonated with me too i was like oh this is really just a variation on that whole thing as well yeah and one of the one of the great odd things about this movie about zardoz is that um, a lot of the uh, the brutals and the uh, uh the the renegades the olds all wearing suits i mean Mm. you know all beaten up and filthy out there yeah they got tuxedos they got suits and i mean again that's part of i think the film's twisted sense of humor is saying like oh the the lowest most downtrodden classes what they have nothing to wear like nothing clean so they're wearing old tuxedos old suits and it's a it's a great contrast to the uh, incredible blight that surrounds them that's where the wedding dress comes from yeah you know what that you, you that makes total sense now I love You're welcome. That. Thank you. I, I kept thinking of Soylent Green and Parallax View because, like, <laughs> it seems like se- '70s audiences were made to sit and watch 
other people in movies sit and watch movies. And, you know, there's, <laughs> you know there's, every time they go into his mind, he's, they're just yeah. watching movies. But does that all come from Clockwork Orange? Yeah, maybe. Is, 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 is Clockwork Orange the first one that really makes you sit there and watch movies for a little bit? That's an interesting call. I, I, I think you, that sounds right to me. Does it happen at all in seconds? No, there's in, seconds. In seconds, that... they show him a little blackmail film uh, when uh, before he's transformed into Rock Hudson, which is part of how they uh, convince him that you should do this or we'll show this little porn loop that we shot with you. But it's, it's brief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was an obsession of John Frankenheimer's too, because that, that, that shows up again in 52 Pickup. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. And plus, he's always hiring porn actors as background players. Right. Yeah. Ron Jeremy's in a couple of films. That's right. I just, Jesus Christ, I just watched Ghostbusters for the first time in a long time recently. Ron Jeremy's an extra. I, I had what? no idea he was in it. There's a, it's a scene with it outside the Ghostbusters uh, uh, firehouse, and he's all the way on the left. They're out there. I think it's just for a montage of the spirits coming around after they. Uh, after the William Atherton character lets all the ghosts out, turns off, and, mm-hmm. and, and Ron Jim is very clearly uh, behind the police tape, and it blew my mind. Wow. I can't believe I never noticed it before. That's Laszlo you, Kovacs, right? Who shot that? That is correct. Beautifully yeah. shot. Beautifully did shot. Did you, Scooter, did you, as I have decided in recent years, think that Atherton is by far and away the funniest thing in that movie? Well, I think the whole film is funny, but he oh, is you do? particularly Ooh. brilliant. I was I was quite happy revisiting Ghostbusters. I, I, cocaine comedies from the eighties have, have a huge appeal for me. And this Blues Brothers, things like that, are, I, I find very entertaining, especially when I'm drunk. Yeah, um, I'm starting to like Atherton. warm up to Blues Brothers in my old age. Like I'm really starting to dig it lately. Ten mm. more viewings, trust me, and yeah. you'll, you will be there. Whatever no, it I, takes. I I think I am there actually. I, I well, think... let me know when you get into Blues Brothers two thousand. That's when I know things have gone. Don't do it. Is there enough time for that? There's got to be a limit somewhere. Yeah, there's... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> limit to the madness. What, okay, what about Beethoven's Seventh? I mean, another... Make, also makes me feel like I'm watching... Kubrick. Yeah. Or the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. And always, you know. <laughs> it just, so oh, is that... Do they use the seventh in, in that one? Too? Yeah. I haven't seen it. And... Uh, uh, it's the opening credits of the fall to the Tarsum film from right. he makes he wow. makes use of the same movement too. It's I found also a particularly beautiful version, the opening credits version, yeah. which is by David Monroe, who is a, a, a specialist at doing period music. So you have this wonderful voice doing it, uh, which I love. And when I looked him up, uh, he, besides the fact that Monroe died. Two years later, really young, tragically young, 33, but he also worked on uh, The Devils, and, um, yeah. and I suddenly escapes me one other, which I thought was interesting, which also had you know, period music in it. So for a, for a very short, illustrious career for that person. Hmm. Here's a partial list of all the movies that have used Beethoven's seventh. Ooh. The Black Cat in 1934. Wow. Oh, yeah. Omer. Opening credits, I think. Wow. Uh, Zardoz. Lola in 1961. Mm. Uh, Mr. Holland's Opus in 1995. Uh, Irreversible, ah, 2002. That's uh, another Kubrick huh. guy. Yeah. Uh, the Fall, as you mentioned. Oh, it's a Tarsus one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the King's Speech, uh, which 
can't remember why that would be in there. Um, and X Men Apocalypse apparently used it. <laughs> and Westworld. That one the funniest. Westworld, the TV show. So is there no Cook the Thief? Was I getting it confused with Irreversible? I don't know how accurate this list is, but Cook the Thief is not listed on this list. Okay, maybe because I did recently see that uh, re-edit of Irreversible, so maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Can, can we go back just for a second to movies that? this film reminds me of that, yeah or that 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 echo uh scooter already mentioned it i don't know if you guys have ever seen it i i just saw it for the first time in the last five or six years the final program uh mm-hmm. directed by is it robert fuest robert fust i think robert it's fust who who was a he was a hammer guy right he did a few hammer films yeah he started off as a tv guy on the avengers and then he did abominable dr fives fives Fives, and then eventually went on to uh, devil's reign and some other fun stuff but uh final program is based on one of uh, is it a series of novels scooter yeah it's uh, the uh, michael Michael moorcock Moorcock novels with the uh jerry cornelius character jerry cornelius and it's it has a real kind of odd uh cold it's somewhere between a clockwork orange and and zardoz there's a there's a it's it's very you know uh you almost get the feel yeah the the actors are almost like puppets sui generis that film yeah for a science fiction movie it's there's like i don't think there's anything else out there quite like it and what's the can you give a quick uh uh Plotline premise for that one is there? Jeez. I mean, I mean, what's Jerry Cornelius <laughs> trying to do in that? One? Well, I mean, it, well, the funny thing about that movie is it's, it's what Jerry Cornelius is trying to avoid doing, which is being involved in the final program. They're trying to drag him into it, but uh, he's such a great character, um, and uh, it, it's it's hard. It's it's a movie that in many ways doesn't really have a traditional narrative plot. I mean, they're basically. Yeah there's a final program and he isn't connected to it in some way. I'm being a little vague here because I don't want to give away what is actually an interesting couple of reveals. Uh, and he's dragged into the situation uh, after, I mean, uh, some, some family issues. We'll say that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, but it is a spectacular beauty and, and Fust also designed. He also uh, wrote for that movie. He did, he adapted the screenplay from the uh, novel and also designed the movie. Yeah, he was a production designer as well. It's 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 worth seeing. I found it very challenging um, just to just to warm up to it. It's it's You'll never, but it's it's something else. It's not but, a warm up movie. It's, no. if, if if Zardoz is number five on my list of sci fi movies, Final Program is probably at like two or three. Like yeah, just to give you some idea how much I love that movie. So uh, uh, everyone now hearing that should be warned. <laughs> it, it's very it's very it's very faithful to moorcock uh the writer and his yeah. you know where he's uh his style and his tone and where he's coming i read had read a couple of those books in the early 90s doesn't michael moorcock normally write like more like uh fantasy like sort of game like of heavy, thrones heavy, kind of thing heavy metal magazine and right. stuff like that yeah. yeah in fact does he this wait, movie's got a Jerry, lot of that Jerry Cornelius, his pen name, or was it was that the name of the character? That was the character name. 
Right. Jerry Cornelius is basically a uh, drugged up, oversex version of Buckaroo Banzai, or Buckaroo Banzai, I guess, is the G-rated version of uh, Jerry Cornelius, and that uh, Cornelius is a scientist, a rock star, a media uh, superstar, raconteur, a, a media superstar before there was the media we have now, and he's great. Uh, in the movie, he's played by John Finch, walking around 1972 or 73, black fingernails, a black dandy outfit. Uh, just wow. spectacular and really just like boom 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 the dialogue just crackles with sci-fi insanity so would you say he's like the in like flint to james bond uh if that is that an analogy between uh there, i mean jerry cornelius and uh there's something to be said there but without like the it's all all the coolness about him is just like played low it's all down low it's just he walks in doesn't look like he wants to be there i mean that the character not the actor the actor does a great job but he just kind of is there i don't want to be here he swings around says his lines and you just kind of go whoa whoa the, the cool the cool guy got here <laughs> bonus points for having uh, uh oh my god uh sterling hayden thank yeah, you sterling, sterling hayden, hayden yeah. sterling. marches in fucking almost steals the movie he's great there's a there's a moment in Bottle Rocket where Owen Wilson presents uh, Luke Wilson and the other guy as uh, he, he's giving them fake names because he doesn't want them to know they're criminals on the lam. He says, this is Jerry and Cornelius. <laughs> and, and, nice. and I went to the first Chicago screening where it was Owen Wilson, Wes Anderson and Andrew Wilson came to the Piper's Alley Theater. And afterwards, I went right up to Owen Wilson and I said, were you, were you guys making a Michael Moorcock reference? And he said, oh, no, uh, Jerry just seemed like a name. And Cornelius I got from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> makes me sad. Damn. Me too. It was a, it was a little disappointing. Maybe I just I was watched Bob Rocket wrong. the other day. Oh, me too. There's no Zardoz, I'll tell you that. No. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> Not much is. <laughs> You know, I, 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 I will tell you, uh, I wasn't uh, a funny story. I, I uh, met John Borman once, and it was at a screening at BAM in Brooklyn of uh, Hope and Glory. And afterwards, everyone was just standing around out there, and Borman was standing out there just by himself, which was like, what the fuck? Where, why did you? I figured I'd have an entourage or something. So I took the opportunity to walk over to him and... Uh, I said, "Oh, Mr. Borman, it's uh, it's it's great to meet you. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm a, a a fan of, very big fan of two movies that I know you don't get a lot of love." And I said, "I think Zardoz and Exorcist Two are like exceptional science fiction movies. I think they're really great, and I know they have a lot of detractors, um, but I, I just want you to know that there's someone out there loves them." And and I said to him, "I'm just I'm just so curious for you. You you obviously put." all this work, all this love and sweat and tears into it. And I, I mean, how do you, how do you feel, uh, you know, over, over the course of time about these movies? I'm curious to know what you, what, how you feel about them. And he, he looked at me and before he answered me, he looked over his shoulder. He looked around <laughs> because he looked like, he thought I was trying to punk him or something from the question. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. he was very suspicious for a moment. Right. And he thought and he looked at me and he said, he said, well, I'll tell you the the most important thing I discovered with those two movies is that genre films have rules, and sometimes you simply have to obey the rules. Mm. And I was simultaneously heartbroken and elated 
and I was so glad to share the moment with him. I thanked him, and I was like, "That's," I said, "That's that's really something." But here we are talking about Zardos, and I, I'd almost forgotten. I was reminded of of, of that uh, brief interaction with him. But what do you guys think? You know, I was just gonna. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask all you guys, uh, even before you told that story, Scooter. Which is, are there any other? There, there. We can probably come up with a list of sci-fi movies or futuristic movies like this one that have lots of ideas. The final program would be one. And, um, but are there any that are like the, like Zardoz that have as many ideas that it has that, that does play by the rules? Are there any that, you know, and, and by the rules, I, I guess he meant narratively, you know, and in the, in that, in that classic storytelling tradition where, you know, you know what's going on from you know from one moment to the next. I mean, two thousand one yeah. is obviously a hugely successful film with a lot of ideas, but it breaks it breaks right. all the rules and and changed the rules and let people know that you could break the rules. I but, love two thousand one, but I think it breaks the rules conservatively in mm. that it it gives you an idea. Space travel takes time. We're going from here to there. It doesn't stuff them with. Uh, I mean, I, I love two thousand one. I, I would put that on the list as well. But I think there is eight to ten ideas in that movie as opposed to uh, the thirty that are in Zardoz. <laughs> let's yeah. say. I mean, yeah. in terms of ideas per square inch, Zardoz is a tough one to beat. Final program, even you know, even final program doesn't have that much of a you know ideas per second going on it's just that the ideas that it does have are so interesting then how it chooses to explore them and a lot of times the idea is simply a punchline you know there's this great moment where uh, they're talking about in the future that uh, oh i haven't been to rome in a while so it doesn't seem the same without the vatican and the woman says oh i don't know i like the new place better you know, so it's throwaway wines like that that give us an idea of what this world is or what it has become. And, uh, you know, Zardoz would never have a, a saucy little nugget like that. That, if they, that that joke in Zardoz would have taken a full minute to, right. to play out over some kind of uh, voiceover or whatever. Well, they got Zardate in there. I mean, it, it seems <laughs> to me that Verhoeven was probably as close as you could get as to somebody who would follow the rules of genre and still be able to cram in a lot of ideas yeah so especially starship troopers right starship troopers robocop both of those movies like just get better and better every time you watch them total recall total recall yeah definitely Hmm. well starship troopers that the 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 reveal of the nazi uniform i would i would put out as being one of the all-time great 90s sci-fi moments so yeah I, i think that's that's a it was a pretty brave and bold move on but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily what you would call a success when it came out no no i think it's interesting i thought it did okay but right i I don't think it was a blockbuster i think it really accumulated wealth over the years but and i i don't say this as a bad i I say this as a fantastic amazing thing it's amazing how many people saw that movie enjoyed that movie and never for a second thought of it as anything approaching satire Right, that's what's Absolutely. brilliant about it. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, that that really puts it a notch above. Even, even I mean, they Robocop. had toys. They had toys. I've got toys. People have given me like toys from Starship Troopers. I'm like, they really thought that, that this was going to happen. But what were you going to say about RoboCop? Yeah. Oh no, just the satire of RoboCop, which uh, I think is 
uh, is is more on the surface, or it's it's easier to parse than it was in Starship Troopers, which is I think why RoboCop did better in some ways. Uh, you know, they're both interesting science fiction films. I mean, yeah, RoboCop again. We go back to the Johnny Rico joke. Yeah, the whitest guy on earth is playing Johnny Rico. I mean, it tells you right in the first five minutes where where this film is coming from, and that's right. that's just brilliant. But yeah, I, I mean, and back to the the other thing we were just talking about is like, it, is is it the storytelling or is it the ideas in terms of um, staying in the staying in the lane when you're making a genre playing movie. by the rules, as he said. Yeah. Um, you know, what about just... Planet of the Apes? That had a lot of ideas. Does that play by the rules? It's got a. Does that ending? I think so. I think so. I, yeah, I think it's really it's a straightforward through line, and uh, you know, you follow in Charlton Heston through up all the way up to the big reveal at the end. That's a yeah. nice. That's a nice maybe little. Way it's actually a nice series of reveals too. You, you, you're there on the planet. Oh, we, oh, now the apes can talk. Then he finds his friend with the you know the cutout in his head there. So the right. film is like, every 15 minutes or so you get a nice little something, a little nugget up until the ending. So in that sense, I think it's a very traditionally told oddball tale. And, very and well I don't, done. I don't think Borman, but I. Excalibur is about as close to a, you know, classic narrative, but it's, but it's, you know, it's all of the Arthurian legends in one. So it's 10 classical narratives, you know, one after the other, these little kind of vignettes and stories about each of the Knights of the Round Table, but he's always kind of shaking things up, you know, uh, Hope and Glory is a memoir. Uh I, you know, Emerald Forest is a pretty traditional quest story, and Deliverance is probably as close as he came to, you know, playing by the rules, as transgressive as that movie mm. is. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, point blank, a, a revenge, you know, it's a classic crime revenge story based on a novel that's told in this really plain Hemingway esque. Stark, stark language and i mean that you know i mean that stark reference in both ways um, but is the lead character a ghost well that's different than the book um that's something that that's that's an aspect that that i think yeah. uh that borman's metaphysic metaphysical interests and his cutting his editing you know and his 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 being inspired by rene and the French New Wave that that helped to layer that onto the film. Yeah, Borman fuckery. Maybe that should be. Uh, <laughs> seems to add just a little, little like spice to all his movies. Bore fuckery. B o o r. <laughs> so I was looking around for a trailer for Zardoz to start the episode with, and the original theatrical trailer is very, very visual. Doesn't have a lot of dialogue and has no Rod voice. trailer. I hope you. Uh, yes. That, and so yes, then I came across the radio spot for oh yeah, okay. the, the, great the drive-in and it's yeah it's voiceover by Rod Serling. I was just going to ask you if you found it. Yep, Ooh. and back you know back to where the movie begins. I think almost where we began. Uh, Nineteen seventy-four, also the release of Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which has a forced prologue a prologue that was forced upon him after after preview cuts with narration read by rod serling oh i forgot about that yeah yeah oh wow totally forgot about that yeah Yeah. maybe rod serling should have been the voice of zardoz 
Meet Zet. <laughs> do we do we know who was the voice of Zardoz anyway? The uh, the stone. Oh yeah, that's was. a good question. When I listened to the uh, commentary, uh, I thought it, at some point he'd say like, "Oh, you know, born so." That oh, was Ar- Arthur Frayne. Come on, guys! Didn't you watch it, the maybe movie? Maybe it is. Maybe it's N- Niall. Maybe Bucky. it is the same actor. I just, yeah. I just, yeah. I don't. Yeah. Well, he's oh, doing it. He's definitely doing a different voice. If it is that guy, he's doing a whole shtick. Yeah. I, Bor- Borman is the is the uh, brutal. The guy gets shot. And terrible. Yeah, but he's also he also revealed mm-hmm. later that his his head was the model for Zardoz's head. You know, uglified and Borman's uh, head was exaggerated. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he had he had to sign a. Uh, uh, I guess some socialist newspaper was going to review the movie, and they they were worried that he was making fun of Karl Marx. So they had him he sign a, sign a pledge that he was not making fun of Karl Marx; that the head was based on his own head. Wow, <laughs> that's dedication. Very and he nice. said he was happy to do it. <laughs> he needed a good review. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for the Zardoz review in the New York Times from 74, and it turns out it only got a little capsule review uh, on a, on the Sunday after it, it was released in New York. Uh, but it's in good company for these capsule reviews, and it's always fun to see what critics thought of you know, movies that we now consider classics when they first got there. And it's sort of, you know, I'm at the point now where it's like, I'm impressed by any critic that ever gets a movie right on initial release because Mm. so many of them don't. And, you know, I guess it's just, it's an interesting thing about movies is that you sort of have to live with them for a while before you can really say. Even even when they like it, they like it for the wrong reasons, right? Right. Now, mm. not that the reviewer liked Zardoz, but the capsule review is, as an exercise in futuristic abstraction, Zardoz is science fiction that rarely succeeds in fulfilling its ambitious promises. John Borman, who directed the exemplary Deliverance, wrote, produced, and directed this fantasy, fantasy set in 2293 on Irish locations, merely proves that its major attributes are technical. His melodrama about a harried world order of the future is a good deal less effective than its special effects. Well, Ebert said every once in a while, a movie like this comes along, a movie you've got to see so that you too can be in the dark about it. In the movie's own terms, this much can be said for sure. It may not make you an apathetic, but it will certainly age you by two hours. <laughs> wow, that's really the review? That's the end of the review, yeah. Oh, that's, wow. I remember, I remember some New York critic writing about The Shining when it was released that it was baffling and most resembled uh, like an Italian horror movie. So I'm assuming they're talking about like Argento and stuff. I don't know what they were so baffled by, but um, hmm. that that was their take on it. But okay, but also getting a capsule review the same day as Zardoz, and this is sort of almost like us playing our, what else was playing this week? Uh, uh, the Last Detail got a capsule uh-huh. review. And it's interesting that these that these reviews, that they sort of seem like, dude, this is a classic. What are you talking about? But also... Um, I think in a way they're interesting because they do some of these immediately do seize on things that you if you are going to like think about well what are what are some of the things about the movie that maybe don't work as well that they that 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 they did capture some of this. So Vincent Campy says the last detail is one superbly funny, uproariously intelligent performance plus two others that are very very good uh effectively surrounded by profound bleakness, so effectively present or surrounded by profound bleakness that it seems to be a new kind of anti-comedy. 
It's a good movie, but an unhomogenized one. Hmm. Awesome. I'd, I'd like to see an unhomogenized good movie. <laughs> yeah. that, What's the problem? Was, I, was he yeah. looking for... A, Pasteurization a, a, is overrated. <laughs> was he looking for an alternative to Gritty? Is that unhomogenized? I guess so. Yeah. Uh, and then Blazing Saddles got the got the following uh, capsule. Blazing Saddles is every Western you've ever seen turned upside down and inside out, braced with a lot of low burlesque, which is fine. In retrospect, however, one remembers, along with the good gags, the film's desperate, bone-crushing efforts to be funny. The trouble is that Blazing Saddles has no real center of gravity. It has a story, something about a black sheriff and his white sidekick who saved the town of Ridge Rock from land speculators. But as charming and funny as Little and Wilder are, the film's focus is split among the comic set pieces and the various eccentric supporting characters. Hard to be a visionary, Mel Brooks. Hard to be a visionary. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Cleavon Little in that movie is the center of gravity. I mean, absolutely. He's, he, he's, he's, I just watched it about two weeks ago. <laughs> Three weeks ago. Hadn't seen it in a while. It's fantastic. It holds up great. So fuck that guy. I mean, Jesus. Not a bad week to be a moviegoer in New York. You got yeah, Blazing really. Saddles, Last Detail, and Zardoz. Oh, my God. I'd, I'd go, I, I just need some hookers and blow, and I wouldn't leave the theater for the weekend. Are you kidding? That's, that's fucking awesome. Uh-huh. Uh... Boy, I'm going to show you. Let me share my screen because I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's a full page ad for Walking Tall, which is so against what you would ever think that they would advertise Walking Tall as. But you look at this ad for Walking Tall and you're like, what? Yeah. Oh, is this a, je- a jeans ad? What is this? Is this looks like. Some Sears catalog. I do love the tagline for this thing. Sooner or later, someone you know will tell you to see Walking Tall, unless you tell them first. (laughs) It looks like that ad is trying to get the people who haven't seen Walking Tall yet and weren't going to see it with the old ads. Yeah. Did we lose... Is it a chick flick ad? I mean, it it looks like it's a romance here. It looks like love story or something. Right. Right. Exactly. It's crazy. Laughing Policeman. (laughs) Uh, I like like that one. I wish I loved it. You can La- see Lasting Policeman, right? Oh yeah. No. It's 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 I, I it's I think it's really good, but it's not great. I, I wish I wish it was great. You're right. Um but what about this one next to it that I've never heard of? Black Belt Jones. He clobbers the mob. You've never heard of Black Belt Jones? I haven't Mm-mm. seen it, but I've heard of it. Mm-mm. What about that thing at the bottom of of uh Blazing Saddles? Scroll up. From the people who gave you the jazz singer? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, oh my God. that's great. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Even the ad is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> now I see it was uh, Alfredo. Alfredo is that like a retitling of Alfredo Garcia? What is what is that? I don't know that. One. Alfredo, Alfredo playing with played against Sam. I have no idea. <sighs> Weird. Saying Willie Dynamite. Day for night. Serpico. I, you know, I really wanted to like Serpico. I've, you don't like Serpico, huh? Yeah, no, sorry. I, it's I, maybe I need to give it another shot. Maybe are you not a Sydney Lumet guy? I was about to no, ask no, that I, I, no. I, it has nothing to do with that. I just was like, I was disappointed. I, I thought there'd be a little more to it, and it just. Um, did, what, did you okay. recently watch it for the first time? Is that what? Yes, okay. I, I saw, and I think in the last year. I mean, I'd much rather sit through The Devil and Miss Jones a couple mm. more times since it's probably my one of my all-time favorite porn flicks. Brilliant. 
Mm-hmm. Disney's Robin Hood playing with One Little Indian starring James Garner and Vera Miles. Wow, I've never seen that. I've never even heard of it. Jeez. Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle is in One Little Indian. I need to see this movie. <laughs> what a cast. Goodness gracious. What's going on there? Yeah. Uh, what else do we got here? Oh, and Morgan Woodward. Ooh, nice. Ooh, like super, ex- super dad. And the Ooh. Exorcist has been relegated to this ad that's even smaller than, uh, wow. Yeah, wow. Super dad, wow. Super dad, Magnum Force. Oh, wow, it's at Radio City, so there's a, there's a show with it. See, Five on the black hand side, plus you get as oh. a second feature, Hickey and Boggs is a movie that McBadden was always trying to get me to do on this show that I've, I have not seen. I need to watch it, I guess. You know, um, you do. It's fucking great. And that's who? With Robert Culp? Yep. I just, and... I, I, I've, I've, I've really grown to love Robert Culp. I just saw Hanny Calder for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's the he's the second lead in it, and I was just like, why wasn't this guy a fucking superstar? I don't really right. I just don't understand. What the, is what, Hickey what and Boggs was. kind of a cop type of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and who's uh, who's Boggs? Who's the other? Who's the other star? It's a, uh, uh it's Bill Cosby. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah. Now the interesting about the movie too is that Culp directs it. He's a great job as a director on it as well. And if I remember correctly, uh, did John Milius, was he involved? Did he write Ooh. the script? Was he involved in it? I'm trying to remember. I thought, sorry, it's been a while since I've watched it, but uh, there's right. a Milius connection there too. All right, After watching Busting, list. I'm in the mood for this. Busting is great. Yeah. Yeah. Busting is great. Busting is Himes' feature debut. He'd done a couple right. of TV movies, but right. yeah. Busting's uh, fantastic. Yeah. Paramount was was pretty jazzed up about Great Gatsby. They were offering you yeah. they were offering you the chance to get advanced tickets, which was unheard of at the time. Is there is there a price on there for those advanced tickets? That's a good question. Cuz I, I don't see one. 5 whole dollars. You got you got like you by can mail. get this. Tickets yeah, you by get mail. to send it in, but oh no, 6 bucks. 6 bucks. Wow, that's a lot of money for 74. That's probably when the average price was what about like a buck 52 bucks or something, would that be about right? What a scam. I mean, but this is probably uh, like not not too long after Deep Throat, remember, and they were charging people more to go see Deep Throat and right. people went. So maybe See, this falls into my whole scheme of how movies should work. If it's a 100 million dollar movie, you should pay more to see it, and if it's a low budget film, you pay less. It's the way it should work, and that way it encourages people to see low budget stuff because who wants to pay 10 bucks for a Schwarzenegger film or a Bergman film, right? You you say, well, Bergman's five. You know, I'll give that a shot. I'll try that. It's the way it should have always been. That's a good idea. Yeah. It just, I always thought video stores should have done that, too, with rental prices. But uh, yeah. I guess it's a little late for that now. Two for one with foreign films. <laughs> See, there you go. Right. Yeah. Or independent or low budget, you know. Right. Wow, there was uh, Lucy Mame. That was a, a bomb. She's. <laughs> Maybe we should do that, Scott. Mame. Lucille Ball in Mame. Oh, why? Why you do? Why you do it to me, Damie? <laughs> nice. <laughs> when if you guys do Mame, yes. or if you do Exorcist too, I will read the paragraph 
from Richard Burton's diaries where he talks about what a monster Lucille Ball is. It's one of the <laughs> funny one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I just discovered it recently. Is Burton in MAME? Nope. Oh, okay. Um but uh just just, just apropos of nothing. But he went to yeah. see MAME. <laughs> I think he was doing oh some God, kind of hilarious. TV variety special with her or something. Uh. And, and uh a, a person of merciless charmlessness or something like that. Wow, that's pretty good coming from a fucking uh, alcoholic. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. He monster. Said, she should thank her lucky stars I wasn't drinking, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, oh, is this a TV section? Yes. Millen Millen and and oh, my God. I saw the ad for this new uh, Squaring the Circle about... Um, about hypnosis and all the record covers that they did. Yeah, I saw. Oh, them. right, right. right. What, what, what was going on with Doctor Spock and Carol Channing? We went right by that. Where is that? Oh, what's between Doctor Spock and Carol Channing? The Pat Collins show. Oh, mm. gotcha. Sorry. And so, it's Doctor Spock, hello? not not Mister Spock. Yeah, not Mister Spock. That's why. That's why. No, that's why I was so curious to see if they. Had, I love the, the zoom and shit you're doing. It's so Blade Runner. It's great. Yes. <laughs> to the left. That's yeah. where I get all my technology from. Uh, let's see what movies we could have watched on TV on that day. Boy, not a lot. I guess on Sunday they don't bother with much. Oh, Ballad Castle of a... Keep. Where are you seeing that? Jewish oh, yeah, Castle Keep. at 10.30 a.m. there. Oh. oh, Castle Keep. That's a good one. God damn it. What did I do here? That what are they highlighting? The, Jewish the letter. Music. The Life of Emile Zola. Downstairs. Anna and the King of Siam with Irene Dunn and Rex Harrison. Was Rex Harrison playing the King of Siam? Yes. Oh, I boy. think he has hair wow. in that movie, too. Oh, right. no. Not him, too. I have a Rex Harrison hat. <laughs> <laughs> you can't come you in here Rex with your Harrison Rex Harrison hat. hat. Oh, Get shit. it from Kelly LeBrock. Yeah, yeah sweet right. smell of success on Thursday. Wow. Nice. Hey, Wait, how what, about Wednesday night at the movies, A Case of Rape? A Case of Rape starring Elizabeth Montgomery. Oh, William Daniels, too. Wow. Yeah. Cliff Potts from uh, Silent Running. Nice. Another movie uh, made possible by Deliverance. Case of Rape? Case of Rape. Well, I've never seen it, but (laughs) Rape became a big thing in 70s movies after Deliverance, I think. You know, I was in... uh, Rapealicious. It was a good time. Oh, it was. You you mentioned Sweet Smell of Success is playing, right? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, what a great movie. PBS we, is showing Alexander Nevsky. Wow. Cool. Oh, of course they were, yeah. Probably the same 16 millimeter print we had in uh, high school. So they're calling, they're calling Lover Come Back the brightest day Hudson frolic. Is that right? Is Lover Come Back the... the no. The, what about Peachy? Is it, it is Peachy, Peachy as well? It yeah, is Peachy. It is Peachy, but is it the brightest? I mean, it's most mm. brightly lit. It's only three, right? So uh, uh, pillow talk and uh, semi no flowers, uh, and lover come back. Those three, right? Will is success Doris, spoil Rock Hunter? Is that one was, of them? No, was that's Doris uh, not no. In seconds. That's just Tony Randall. Oh, okay. Was Doris not in which one? Seconds. My, <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> great, a great romantic one. comedy. Seconds. Uh, now, what, so who would she stuff is would perfect. She, <laughs> Would she have been the the Salome Jens part? The 
exactly. Yeah. And she would have, she would have gone, it, 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 it would have added her. It would have been called thirds. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, if not, you know, give it a Salome Jens role. Although when, if they'd really been radical, it would have been uh, Rock Hudson being uh, having surgery and coming out as Doris Day would be fantastic. <laughs> What's the Great American Dream Machine? Was that a children's show, wasn't it? Uh, Albert Brooks did segments for that show. Um, it's on. Uh, you can get it on V. You can get it on DVD yeah. now. I don't it's think a, it's a children's show. No, that's magical really. movie machine. I think you're thinking. Yeah. Of. Oh, okay. You're right. That's right. Uh, Great American wow. Dream Machine like called upon all these independent American filmmakers to do like, you know, little little short films and. Uh, I know Albert Brooks did a couple segments on there mm. before before SNL. I think. Wow. Uh, they really That's like great. Edge of Darkness. I've never seen anyone seen this one. I want to see it. Yeah. Vivid, pounding drama of occupied Norway, played to the hilt by grand cast. Errol Flynn and yep. Sheridan. Walter That's a Hunt. pretty sexual review. Yeah. It played, has a, almost two hilt. Yeah. Two, almost the exact same plot as uh, Columbia's Norway World War II film, uh, which I think came out the same year, called Commando Strike at Dawn. Directed by John Farrow with uh, oh, wow. with uh, Paul Muni. He's not reading any of this, folks. No. <laughs> I've seen them both, and I like Commando Strike at Dawn a little bit more. All right. Confessions what about of Confessions a Nazi of a Nazi Spy? Yeah. Confessions of a Nazi Spy. One of the oh, few. Oh, so that with Robert yeah, Eddie G. Robinson. Oh yeah, yeah. I want to see that. It's George an Anatole, Sanders. Anatole Litvak film. Yeah. Maybe is this one of the ones where John Houston contributed to the script? It might be. It's streaming. I just saw it listed the yeah. other day. I think it's, it's on, on the it's TCM on or Prime. Oh, Max, on, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's on Max through the TCM channel. That's uh, or, or yes, but you're right. It's on Max. I had it right because it was one of the things that's in that that Warner documentary. I think they mention it in in that like in part one. Yeah, I mean it was one of the things where they yeah they're 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 patting themselves on the back for right calling out Nazis yeah. two two years <laughs> before we entered the war. Um. Nice. Hmm. Well, anyway, there, there you go. have it. Oh, Robert Altman's "That Cold Day in the Park" is on at ten thirty that night. At the oh, Times wow. Review, cold turkey and overheated oven. Yeah, so I as remember. Far as patting I remember that movie. People on the back. Uh, when do you think this movie uh, Zardoz became like the reappraisal started? I don't know. I think there are still a lot of people who think it's laughable. There's still lots of internet stuff about it. This is, this is the Sean Connery in a diaper movie. Um, uh, yeah, it's better known as a meme than a movie at this right. point, I yeah. think, for most people, yeah. But, I think when, when Danny Perry does it in cult movies, too, he's at least acknowledging there are a group of people out there, like me and Scooter, who really like the film right. and have seen it multiple times and are trying to turn other people onto it, most of whom... Oh, I've yeah, given up. Well, here's given up at this point. My brother Dave made this shirt for me. Here's a review from Jonathan Rosenbaum in, in 1993, where he says probably John Borman's most underrated film, an impossibly ambitious and pretentious, but also highly inventive, provocative, and visually striking SF adventure with metaphysical trimmings. Uh, Sounds like he got my check in the mail. Nice. The plot, in many ways, resembles that of Borman's best film, Point Blank. So that was in 93. Rosenbaum. Tell, wait, tell these boys your Jonathan Rosenbaum story, because we told it on another podcast, but it deserves to be on this one. 
uh, what movie was it? Do you remember? Oh, it was, was the new. It, was it, it Guardians was, of the Galaxy? No, it was Paul Schrader. No, it was Master Gardener. Yeah, it was the new Paul Schrader. And so you've got to get your tickets beforehand now, you know, with the, the app and everything. So I get my ticket and it's... Assigned seats is what it is. Assigned seats, right. So it's the third row right up front. I go in there and there's some jackass sitting in the, in the third row. And I'm like, not today. I'm not putting up with it today. So I go up and I'm going to kick this guy out of my seat. And he looks up and it's Jonathan Rosenbaum. And, he, and I'm like, wow. you're in my seat. And he looks up and it's him. And he goes, oh, well, I'm sorry. I'm like, you know what? It's you. You're, you're, um, you're Chicago's best living film critic. You can sit in my seat. It's okay. Just sit there oh that's nice it was nice but it was a shock to see him he looks up at me like like i turned the light on and you know a but raccoon the, but where's where does that leave you then so I mean, if there's a signed seat i sat right behind him and i stared a hole in his head and i breathed on his <laughs> neck and i just <laughs> what do you do in that situation jim healy mm, well i know jonathan a little bit so i guess i let him have the seat Got to go behind him. I uh, I had to wake up Michael Wilmington <laughs> in the middle of a uh, Chicago Film Festival screening of John Frankenheimer's Seconds with John Frankenheimer in in person in the theater because uh, he was snoring so loudly. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, and he he was mortified. Mortified. Did right. Frankenheimer so, hear him? Yeah, eh, it's wow. hard to say. Probably not. But Dude. you know. Do not take uh, second I'm sorry. I, I Do not really take like second all before seconds. Ouch. Yeah. yeah right. I love waking people up in the movies. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. I just, I can't, <laughs> you're snoring. I, uh, I had to nudge Peter Bogdanovich during a screening of the cat's meow, but uh, in his defense, he was just, just got, I, that came right off a plane from England. Uh, in his defense, was it was the cat's meow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ooh. I got to tell a story. Out. I meant to tell it before when Scooter told his John, meeting John Borman after a screening story. I was, uh, I went to see, uh, I probably have told this story before, uh, but I don't think I told the second half of it. But I went to see, uh, I went into Manhattan to see the opening night of Raising Arizona. Um, and uh, I forget what theater it was uh, on the Upper West Side, maybe. And there was a, some kind of restaurant next to the theater. Um, and uh, I had dinner there and got out of the theater and bumped right into the Coen brothers uh, who were hanging out. I, it was like the baronet and the coronet. I've heard this one, yeah. And uh, I walked right up to them and I said, uh, oh my God, you guys. Um, and I was with a friend of mine. And he was like, do it, do it. I was like, uh, I know you guys have kind of disowned this movie Crime Wave, but I don't know why. Like, it's so great. Me and my friends all love it. We saw a midnight show of it. It's just the best. And he looked at me like, well, I don't, we don't know where you heard that. We, yeah, we love it too. It's great. Zed <laughs> <laughs> and like, he sort of walked away. And then, it's great. Uh, then a couple of years ago, maybe like five years ago at this point, I was in uh, Santa Barbara, California for my first ever and maybe last ever time. Uh, at some kind of dumb film festival conference. Um, and the Coen brothers were there uh, to give Jeff Bridges some kind of bullshit award that they were doing at this film festival expo, whatever it was. But we were all at this hotel together, and it was sort of everyone was kind of hanging out. And so um, I see Joel Cohen standing around 
minding his business, not talking to anybody. So I walk up to him and I, and I say, Hey man, I just wanted you to know, uh, uh, love all your movies. Uh, we showed uh, a 35 print of uh, Inside Lewin Davis recently, before, you know, as a sort of a sneak preview. It was so great. And um, and I'm sure you don't remember this. I had this awkward encounter with you many, many years ago outside of Raising Arizona. Where right. I was trying to talk up Crime Wave to you. And he's like, yeah, okay. And again, here's <laughs> my se- second strike. I got one more strike. When are you going to learn? Cohen. No, I'm never going to Don't talk to the Cohen no, no, brothers. I need to strike out. I need to go down swinging. I need at least one more shot with this fucker. Um, yeah, no, you don't. I don't see any money in it. No. And he, and he, by the way, he did not look around to see if he was being punked. He knew he was being punked. It was, there was no doubt about it. Oh. Yeah. Hey, I've got, I've got one more yes. Zardos thing. Oh, yeah, good. Ooh. So, uh, you know, I met John Borman twice in 98 and then again, must've been 20, uh, it was 2010 again. And, uh, uh, but it was the first time that I met him that I talked about Zardoz and he's, you know, he was happy to meet another fan of the film. And he told, he said two stories about it. One that he tells at least two different times on the arrow Blu-ray, which is when he, checks into hotels and strange cities and people know he's there. They send him green bread to his hotel room. <laughs> but that's happened multiple times. Uh-huh. Um, the other the thing he well, said what, to me... Can we I, just, why is the bread green? Does anybody know? Is there an answer? Oh, uh, uh, there was some... I, you know what? I had an answer that, that just occurred to me while I was watching it, and now it's it's gone <laughs> from my head. But it, it has something to do with the grain and what they're working with. And I don't know, I, I, I'd have to think about it again, but, but uh, the other thing he said, which I never heard him say uh, before or since is that uh, he said, well, Laddie really liked the film too. And he came in and he was talking about Alan Ladd jr. Who was head of Fox. Mm. I don't know if he was the head of the studio that greenlit, Zardoz at the time, but later on he he was there during Star Wars, and right. after Star Wars, he was like, "What? What else do we have that sci-fi that you know we can put out?" He said that he was really serious about re-releasing it again, and I don't know what happened. And I wondered, and I remember thinking at the time, "Man, he probably wasn't serious. He was probably just you know giving you a little <laughs> lip service." But uh-huh. you know, you know what? This is the guy who greenlit. Speaking of movies that Zardoz reminds us of. Uh, in 1979, uh, Robert Altman's Quintet, which is a movie that reminds me of Zardoz. I meant to say yeah. that too, that those films are are tied together in my mind for, for yeah. whatever reason. I so think maybe because Alan Ladd Jr. was a fan of Zardoz. I, I think when I never, what I didn't get to say at the beginning is that I, although I didn't really see much or any of Zardoz for a while before, you know, even though I knew about it, was that. My impression of it, much like Quintet, was that I would that if I ever saw it, I would not have any idea. They both seemed from a from a distance like movies that made no sense, that were impossibly complicated, that were that were in a kind of cool dystopian sci-fi futuristic genre, which I liked, but that I was afraid to see either one of them because I'd heard that they were so difficult or so muddled in some way that that I was afraid I was going to, it was just going to be over my head, especially Quintet, which is, a, which is like, they're playing some game, right? Which is yeah. impossible like to understand the rules or, of, uh, yeah. yeah. 
and there's crystals and the production is on. It's a snowy, icy future. And if you step outside, you freeze. Right. Talk about filters. Like, I think the whole yes. movie looks like, like yeah. you're trying to watch it through some kind of like. Yeah, I curtain. think Altman used a French cinematographer in that film. Or maybe a, I know it was shot in Montreal, but. Um, hmm. I know, I, I, to the point of your other story, I got to say that Czar Dawes does sound a lot like Star Wars. So maybe that's what they were. See if they can coast on that. Could be. It sounds yeah, pretty close. They, they Maybe that's what he said. Font. I like Star Wars. Oh, you, you like Zardoz? Yeah. 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 yeah, we're going to re-release <laughs> exactly. it. Yeah, of course you are. The sure. question is, what is the ti- what what is the book that Star Wars is like the title of, but you know, missing two two letters off of Star and Wars? That's the real mystery. That is a mystery <laughs> that we will not solve tonight. tonight. Well, gentlemen, it's been a wonderful uh, two hours and thirteen minutes with you. Um, <laughs> This was great. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, Jim, I missed you at the uh, New York, New York screening. Yes, I'm sorry I missed you there, Scott. And I also didn't get a chance to come up to you and tell you how much I enjoyed uh, the, uh, the lifers in oh, Madison. Okay. I really had a really great time that night. And you guys were yeah, very entertaining. Thanks. For a couple hours. It was a blast. Maybe I'll see you at the 70 millimeter Babylon in July. I think you will. Yeah. Okay, good. I'll I'll touch base with you before that. Maybe we can coordinate and show Wait a minute. Where is that happening? Music Box. Oh, Music okay. Box. It, it's interesting. We're talking about a movie that's taken how long and still hasn't gotten its full reassessment. It looks sure. like we're seeing no. the reassessment of Babylon in real time. Like, it's just warp speed. That's it's crazy. Yeah, that's a modern phenomenon. I think maybe, maybe that'll happen more, but uh, with other movies, but... But yeah, I, you know, just the fact that the music box decided to show, it's not just because there's a 70 millimeter printed, you know, I know there are people there who are, you know, who are fans and, right. and here, here we are, at least three of the four of us. I don't know about Scooter's opinion, but. Haven't, yeah, I, I, I see two new movies a year at most. Some years I don't see any. Yeah, well, you, I got a hundred years of catching up to do, so I, I'm always trying to watch the old ones first. And I, yeah. I'll, I'll get to the new stuff, but I almost never when it's new. It's, yeah. it's not even me like being you know judgmental or whatever. It's just like I'll get to it. I'll get to it. There's only you know, so much time after Boy and His Dog and Zardoz every few months, you know. I mean. <laughs> Scooter, you don't have any directors who you will see their new movie no matter what. You mean living directors? Sure. Yes. Yes. I guess that, uh, that would. Yes. Um, I would say David Cronenberg and uh, John Carpenter makes another one. I'll be there for him. Um, and before that, really, the last the last hurrah was for me. It was like someone like Romero, uh, where it was like, no matter what, I'm there. But I think beyond that, now, uh, yeah, really, yeah, nobody actually. Hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's some great directors out there and some great movies. Again, I just no, don't be so sure. I don't know. There's a guy called Martin Scorsese who's got a little bit of gas left in his tank. I've never been a Scorsese fan. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I feel the same way about Schrader. Like, no matter what it is, I'm going to go see it. You know? Oh, you know what? You know, I got to say, Schrader and Abel Ferrara. Yeah. I do tend to, if Abel, or you're you're right. Those those are two. Do you see the Pasolini movie? That one I haven't seen yet. I'm going to oh, see it. That's, that's and I'm a good looking one. Yeah. looking forward to Master Gardener as soon as I can, and uh, and, and yet what I've and Tommaso I haven't seen yet either. So I'm still I'm catching up on the last couple of Ferraris just because they didn't really play around here in any way that I was able to see them. Yeah, it's tough to find them. 
I'll just buy the Blu-rays. That's my dedication to yeah, you Abel. Can do that. All right. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. And thanks, everybody, for hanging in with the podcast. You know, even if you only get one every six months, it's, we're giving you quality content. It's, it's quality, not quantity. Some of these podcasts are up to like two or 300 episodes. Wait, this podcast is still happening? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I never hit oh. stop. Oh, okay. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.